0: All right, episode number three coming up with Brian Edwards of Rocklands Entertainment. Really great friend of mine. We do a lot of touring together and uh, Brian got started at a very young age, uh, 17 when he was booking his first shows and uh, this episode talks about his beginnings and some of the great acts he's worked with uh, over the years, uh, including some great Canadian artists, Tommy Hunter, uh, Stomp and Tom Connors. And uh, we'll talk about his beginning with uh, Kitty Wells from the Grand Old Opry. It's lots of great stories, and I think we'll do a part two uh, in the fall when we're out on the road and continue on with even more great stories that I know he has. So, hope you enjoy this one. It's a great, great lesson. All right starting podcast number 3 very excited to have my very good friend, Mr. Brian Edwards from Rocklands Entertainment, and uh, we've known each other for a very, very long time. Oh, boy. <laughs> That's How many years do you think? It goes back to at least, I must have been early teens, like 12, 13, 14.
1: I would say it's probably mid 80s anyway. So it's yeah. probably, you know, very much 30, 33, 34, 35 years like maybe.
0: It's been quite a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Time flies when, when you're, you're having fun. A-
1: absolutely. <laughs> it sure <laughs> does.
0: God, thank God we're still having fun. I know. That's the whole whole thing of it, right? Absolutely. So I figured this would be a really great way for for everyone to kind of I, what I like with this podcast is kind of going back to the beginning and and learning a little bit about where you started and where you came from and how you got there and um so now I know you live in Peterborough now obviously did you did you were you born in Peterborough
1: I was actually born on my grandmother's table in a little town called Cordova Mines Ontario which has a population of about 35 people just a little east of Peterborough so it was kind of uh, of course, I can't remember the experience, but I certainly remember hearing about it. It was probably one of those things where the country doctor delivered every baby in those days, and I happened to be one of them, and I didn't make it to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. You don't hear that very often. I was trying to tell some relatives of mine the other day about that, and they couldn't believe it until they t- checked it out, and I told them who the doctor was cause I had the, uh, all the information that they provide when the baby was born, and they said, well, that was the guy that was doing it, and I said, well, that was him. Wow. What kind of table was it? A good old kitchen table. One of those ones right beside the wood stove. <laughs> that's good. Yeah, it was. It was uh, a good country upbringing, which I think, as you can attest to that, there's nothing wrong with that.
0: No. No, no. I, I, I think that's it's a really solid. I think it's it's kind of unusual for people to talk about growing up in the country now. When you talk to people, they don't quite get it. Well, I think, you know, if somebody says to you, what
1: kind of started you or this or whatever you're doing and I think you know my grandfather was a square dance caller back in the in you know in his day and those are the days they had no microphones right they just stood in the middle of the, the hall and just the fiddle player stood there and away the they went yeah so I was always fascinated by that because my dad became a square dance caller too and one thing led to another and you know when we lived in Peterborough my mom and dad were there um, he drove transport truck too, is calling well as calling square dances and they'd go out and work with these different uh local bands all the time and of course they'd end up back at our house.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, you know, over the years a lot of people ended up at our house, including a guy they ended up working with for twenty five years by the name of Stomp and Tom. I mean, yeah. you know, the Peterborough roots came through and I was always fascinated by music. I used to sing at the corner store for a nickel. I used to sing the old song I Don't Wanna Play House and it was a uh, it was it's i still see the guy around town he's a, he's a wonderful lacrosse player he's in the lacrosse hockey uh, lacrosse hall of fame yeah. and uh, he said to me it's one of these days you got to come and sing me that song again i've got a few nickels in my pocket and i said <laughs> well don't be surprised i might just do that so i guess if you want to say what kind of maybe triggered a few things that kind of was the first interest i ever had i mean we had the music around the house i liked it my dad was calling square dances which i had no interest in because And not only could I not call it square dance, but I couldn't square dance either. And you can't do one without Without the other. So you just kind of, you just decide that's not right. But, you know, I always found it kind of interesting. And uh, it it, it was fun because um, I knew the country music thing, like there was no tomorrow. I was was basically weaned on it. I mean, that's what we did. I mean, it wasn't my grandmother's house or somebody's house. There was a guitar and a fiddle or something around. And I even took guitar lessons several times. and never amounted to anything, but I certainly had that kind of- I was of, just going
0: to ask you that. Did you ever play oh, a musical instrument? I
1: well, know. I've still got the guitar in the basement, and I still every once in a while pick it up and say, I can still do C, D, E, and F, and all that sort of stuff. So I can still do a few things, but nothing nothing to get excited about.
0: Is there, I always wanted to ask you this, if there is an instrument, because you know you work so much in behind the scenes, um, all of these entertainers and and seeing all these shows is there something that you've always thought in the back of your minds i wish i could be that guitar player or that drummer or probably not a drummer but (laughs) right there Uh, god bless them um
1: no you know as much as i wanted to do that there was a reason it wasn't clicking yeah i tried and i tried and i would do everything i could and you know i'd go to these guitar lessons And they'd have so much patience with me. And I know deep down inside, they really wanted to say, look, you know, there's five bucks a week you're paying me. You'd probably better off go out and and buy something else because it it isn't going anywhere. So I tried it two or three times. I even got an electric guitar once a time. that's the problem. I need an electric guitar. I need to be able to turn this thing up, fixes everything right up, turn it up and away I go. But I just couldn't get into it. And I thought, you know, Whatever I end up doing, if anything, which in those days I didn't know the first thing about what a music industry even was, let alone being part of it. I just thought, no, whatever I'm going to do, this is not going to be it. And which is fine. I kind of came to the conclusion that uh, I wasn't going to be a musician and kind of let it go with that. And It's either in you or it's not in you. That's exactly right. Yes, I tell you one thing, I certainly have a lot of respect and a lot of... um, uh, uh, jealousy sometimes to see people be able to pick up an instrument and do it by year and all. I shouldn't say the word jealousy, but it is when you're a kid, you, you want to play it like everybody yeah. else, obviously. And when you can see them pick these things up by year, it just blows me away. You know, some of these artists I've worked with over the years, you know, say, well, play me the song once and I'll play it right back to you. And they can. Yeah. You know, and it, it's just amazing. Yeah, I, 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 I
0: like that. I still run into a lot of people where I'm amazed at their talent even though I'm a player myself and can do a lot of those things, but there's some people who are just uber talented that you just can't believe how good they are. Well, you know,
1: when you work with people like Graham Townsend or Frank Mills or any of these people, they probably couldn't read a note of music if they tried, but they're probably some of the best musicians in the world. And it's all by ear. And I think that's, you know, I just think that's a real God-given talent and I have a lot of respect for it. Matter of fact, I worked with a lot of situations I'm sure you have over the years where you you put a chart in front of somebody and if you ever have to improvise or move the chart they're in big trouble yeah because they can't do anything but a chart
0: yeah because you get so used to staring at it exactly you move it away and they're done yeah exactly, exactly. I was working with a group and the, the piano player uh their music blew off the stand and they're playing music that they've played for years and years and years over and over and over again and they were lost they couldn't play it even right. though they probably played the song a thousand times exactly I just couldn't couldn't do it
1: well i see I, somebody told me one time and not that i didn't know this i wouldn't know how to read a chart either but they often told me that if you can feel the music and play it by ear it becomes across a lot more natural and a lot better so i don't yeah. know you know i've seen a lot of symphony orchestra up there and they always looked a little uptight to me and i kind of wonder if they took the charts away maybe they'd be a lot better i don't know i mean not saying i'm a good musician but they don't look as relaxed as you know, some of the Nashville players
0: and those guys that yeah. just do this stuff in their sleep. I was, I always remember memorized all my stuff. I, I remember being in high school and in the, in the high school band and we always used to have a, what they call a stand partner. So you'd share music with the person next to you and the girl next to me, she always used to carry the music. And, uh, and usually after a few times playing, I just kind of, I find myself just not even looking at it anymore because I would, that's how I learned when I was young, just you memorize it and then you've got it. Well, we were doing this little concert at some school somewhere, and, and she didn't show up, so I had no music. So And I'm right in the front section of this stage band and playing the saxophone. And, and the uh, teacher came up, and he just looks at me and says, where's your music? I was like, I, I don't have him. My stand partner has it. He says, well, what are you going to do? He's like, I, I know it. I have no problem. I know it all. And he just gave me the look of death. And he sat there. For every song, I, I know he was looking at his music and this all he did is stare at me. And I knew every single <laughs> song and I knew every single note. And he never said a word to me after that. But yeah, he was mad. And But I, I memorized it. But that's how I grew up learning how to do it.
1: Well, it kind of reminds me of uh, working with Graham Townsend over the years. I remember them saying, you know, they they call him Greyhound. And you know, It was mm-hmm. one take Graham. He'd go in and say, play me that song. And they'd play it and he'd do his part and go home. And they'd say how can he do that well uh, well one of the problems in his particular case he was you know legally blind but on top of that he had a wonderful ear that could do that and a lot of people can memorize it or play it by ear and i think it's i i just think it's i i I had a piano player one time that i wanted to work this tour we're doing with the bond trap children yeah and he had all these charts to read and he couldn't do that and he was a, a by year player yeah and he gets so uptight having to read these charts. He says, well take the charts away and play it the way you know it yeah he says but i can't and i said why because he said i don't know that music i can't do that and i said well let them sing it for you and you play it "Well, i don't play by ear like that and i thought well, that's i didn't know there was a selected play by ear and you thought you played by ear you didn't yeah but there is there's certain people that can only play certain things yeah so i mean i thought do a deer, a female deer shouldn't be too hard in the key <laughs> of C, you know. But what do I know? <laughs> I didn't even get the piano, I didn't get the guitar lesson in. So, you know.
0: So, go- going back to, you know, when you were in school, uh, what, what were your interests back then? Where, what were you into when you were in, in school? Obviously, you weren't playing musical instruments. You obviously would have had a uh, musical interest, but there was anything that you felt that you excelled at at that time?
1: Well, I was funny because I used to deliver. One of the first things I ever did was I delivered the newspapers. And I used to go into this one real estate office and deliver papers and the guy said to me, you know, you're gonna make a really good lawyer someday. And I, and I was only you know, 11 or 12 years old at the time and I got thinking, why does he think I'm gonna make a good lawyer? You know, of course I come home and I got thinking and studying up on lawyers and all the education they needed and thought, well, you know, that ain't happening because I have no interest in that. Yeah. But one thing I did have interest in was something called the radio really interested me and i don't know why um but there was a radio announcer in peterborough by the name of sean air that had this country radio show on and i really was fascinated by the fact that he was on there doing this show that was in those days it was entertainment it wasn't just the weather and the news and this was that song and that was that song that was they were entertaining people wow. and I thought out of this little box and a little transistor radio I had was this entertainment coming out of there and I was I was so fascinated by that that I thought I was really going to be in radio and it, that ultimately was where it started out to go I was going to be you know when I was in grade uh, seven and eight I was doing radio commercials as a little kid for a, a restaurant in, uh, um, called Bobble's at Lakefield, Ontario, doing this restaurant with this little kid wanting to go in and have dinner. Yeah. And I was really fascinated by it, I liked that. I, I, I could hear these commercials and everything and I thought, you know, this is really something I wanted to do. But I got a little bit of experience with that too. and It was almost like the guitar lesson. It was fun, but it wasn't me, I didn't. I, I tried it for a while and the guy on the radio station, Lindsay, was bound and bent that I was gonna um, quit school and come and work there and I was like 350 an hour, I was gonna make you know $140 a week and my life was gonna be set. Yeah. And he convinced me that I'd never have a better opportunity. Well, something told me that that wasn't the best opportunity I could ever get. And yeah. I know cutting out of school in grade 10 wasn't really the best thing I could have done either. So as I get going on a little bit, I, I, I got kind of intrigued by um, these live shows that Sean was mixed up with. And, and we kind of developed you know, a close friendship on the radio side of things anyway. I'd call him a lot on there. And I'd see him on occasion and everything. And one thing led to another. And um, I started actually working with him. And one of the parts of the business that I did was selling advertising. And we would do these country shows and it might have been for might have been a local band it could have been anybody at the time it really didn't matter to me but I got this fascination by this this live music thing so I thought you know what I'm wondering if that's something I'm going to do I wonder if that's something that is going to interest me because the radio side of things I couldn't read the news which is one of the things first of all Some of those words in there that they were using, I don't remember learning them at the Cordova General Store when I was growing up as a kid. So that didn't make a lot of sense to me. And a lady called me one time and she said, who read that atrocious newscast on the air? And I said, it was me. She says, it was dreadful. And I I kind of thought, you know what? She's right. It was dreadful. I didn't know what I was doing on there. So I kind of came to the conclusion the best part for me would be behind the scenes, whether it's selling radio advertising, doing something, I could keep my finger in there and then maybe get involved doing these particular shows. Well, then I decided I wanted to be an insurance salesman. So I thought, there's what I need to be. I need to sell life insurance. i would be the greatest thing I could ever do. Yeah. Took the exam, went down there, I was seven, 18 years old, walked in the place and the guy said, um, um, what kind of money are you making? And I thought, well, if I tell him $10,000 a year, he won't want me. If I tell him 50 he will tell me I'm too much. And I said, I'm making $25,000 a year. He said, wow, you're making that kind of money at that age. He said, that's amazing. I said, yep, that's what I'm making. He said, can you bring me any proof of that, like a T4 slip? Well, there was no way you could go online in those days. There was no such a thing. You couldn't make one up.
2: Yeah.
1: So lo and behold, I'd found a T4 slip. And I put all the information on there, and I took the T4 slip in there. And the guy says, okay, you've proven the fact that you can make $25,000 a year. You start Monday. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. You know, I don't have any formal training, and here I'm going to be selling life insurance. So I go in there, and he says, now, I I need to give you, this wasn't an aptitude test, but very similar to that. And he says, now, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions. And he said, I want you to answer me. The best way you can, he says. You go into a restaurant, and the waiter or waitress brings you something that's wrong with the meal. Do you go ahead and eat it, or do you send it back? And I said, Well, I'd probably eat it. Wrong. He says that's the first mistake. And I thought, Oh God, a good start. (laughs) So then he said, Now, if you were selling insurance, how would you feel about selling your family insurance, your 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 friends and everybody insurance because they would be some of your best clients how would you feel with that and I said I'd be petrified with that because I would never want anybody to be mad at something I was doing I would never be able to do that wrong so I thought oh god so the third question had something to do with how I felt about being a member of service clubs well that about fit in the same category sending the meal back that didn't work very good for me either yeah so out of the three questions he asked me I got the three questions 100% wrong, but yet he said I could still start there. So I come home and I thought about it all and I thought, you know what? This poor guy thinks I'm worth 500 bucks a week. I'm 18 years old. Something's not right here. And my heart said, that's not the direction to go. I'm a up, handed in my little card that he gave me a business card, to me up in the whole bed. I handed them back and said, you know what? I'd rather go back pulling weeds and or picking strawberries because that's basically where I felt I should be because I didn't want any part of that whatsoever. Yeah. So as anything in life, things happen because of a mistake. First of all, I was a mistake. So that, that was easy. And the second thing was <laughs> getting in the music business was kind of a mistake too because I was working with, um, with Sean Eyre at the time. And, and in those days, the musicians union ruled the roost. Yeah. If they don't like you, then you're not going to hire a live band. And they do this thing called blackball you, or Blacklist or whatever the case happened to be. Mm-hmm. And you couldn't do it. I mean, they would they would tell you if it was a union band, even in a place like Peterborough. I mean, my God, any band that was in there, they had to be a member of the union. Yeah. Well, it was a big union town. General Electric, um, Quaker Oats, and a number of other big industry Companies were there, and everybody was union. I mean, GE hired 9,000 people in that little town, so and everybody was unionized. That's just the way it was. So one thing they did not like was disc jockeys. They hated disc jockeys. The The union... union. Oh, God. If you were a disc jockey, you couldn't have nothing to do with live music whatsoever. You could play music, but they did not want a disc jockey. And the theory was behind this, strangely enough, is they didn't want the disc jockey having a better inside edge at promoting and what they were doing on the air because the average agent, manager, promoter couldn't do that. yeah. So they wouldn't let you do it. Wow. So Sean came up with this idea and said, listen, we really need to get a booking license here. And I can't get it. And I said, well, God, I'm only 17 for God's sakes. What the heck am I going to do? Yeah. So I made application. And one of the things I had to have was a letter from the bank proving that I was stable. Yeah. Well, hell, I had about $14 in the bank. That was a good start. <laughs> so, but I had a Visa card. It was up to the limit, but I had one. Yeah. So I said to this bank manager, reminding me of, of um, the guy that used to play in Herbie and the Love Bug, uh, Dean, I uh, um, can't think of his last name. He was, a, he was an actor. He, he looked like this guy. Yeah. Fascinated me. So I in and I said, look it, I'm only 17. I've applied to get this booking license, and I need to have a letter of support from a bank. So he looked up the accounts and he said, well, he says, you've got a $700 credit card. That's got $700 spent on it. He said, you've got $14 in this account. What can I tell them? And I said, well, look it, I really want to get this booking license. He said, how bad do you want that? And I said, I really want it bad. He said, well, listen, I'll write you a letter and saying our business relationships to date have been wonderful. You've paid your bills on time. And you're a good, credible customer. How's that? And I said, well, it's better than the one I've got at the moment. Yeah. So up I go and I march into this musicians' union. And I never forget the guy saying, Who's, whose application is this? And I said, it's mine. And he said, um, yours? Like, how old are you? And I said, I'm 17. And he says, and you want a booking license from the American Federation of Musicians? He said, you know, we got to have a board meeting over this. And he said, we got to invite you to speak to the board. Wow oh god he said he said you've got a letter from the bank here i said yeah i sure do he said wow he says what's sean air got to do with this and i said nothing he says but you work with him i said well kind of but i'm trying to branch away from that i want to do this and he says "Uh, well i don't know he said "I i would highly doubt that it'll get very far so the following two weeks later i get a call and now i got to go to this board meeting so we're sitting around a table much like this and there's eight people there on this board, eight of them for God's sakes and huh. me. And every one of them are pumping me full of questions. But the funny thing is on that board, every one of those board members, except two, knew exactly what I was doing and knew exactly who I was working with. And they knew Sean better than anybody. Yeah. So they knew what was going on. So they started to ask me all these questions about stability and financial, what I was going to do. And I had no connection with radio announcers and, you know, went on and on and on for about two hours, just drilling me at this meeting. Well, finally, I think I'm done. And they decide to hold a vote while I'm there at the table. Wow! So they pump up the hands and one guy's missing at the meeting. So the president can't vote. So now the vote is tied at three to three. The one guy went against me because he didn't want the other union guys to know because he figured with the guy that wasn't there was going to be a, a, a block in. Yeah. Now, the president, he hated me. He knew yeah. no part of me whatsoever because he knew what the situation was. But he got under pressure so much from the board, strangely enough, the guy puts his hand up and I win this vote 4-3. to three. So now all of a sudden, here I am at 17 years of age I'm now a member of the American Federation of Musicians, and now I'm a booking agent, and I don't even know what the hell that means. Yeah. All I know is that we ran country shows, and we brought in different acts. So it was quite a thing. I had, you know, had to go through and get union contracts made up, and I had to go through a union shop to get them done. We couldn't just go to a local print shop. They had to be done by, with the union stamp, stamp on map. them and the hobbit. So we get through all of that, and now I'm in I'm still in High School. So I'm, I'm appointed on the city council, uh, not the city council, but the school council. I'm not even voted on the thing. The guy, one of the teachers likes me so much, he puts me on the student council. And I'm in charge of entertainment. Now, <laughs> now, here I am. I'm used to listening to Kitty Wells and Hank Snow and Wilf Carter and Stomp and Tom, and here I am putting together the school formal. That was fun. Yeah. But the funny part about it is the school council booked two shows from me. And that was the first two shows I did as a licensed 17-year-old booking agent. Wow. The high school Friday Night Dance and the formal. And I picked this old 70s rock and roll group to do the formal. And the people killed me. But I liked it. Yeah. I mean, I went. I had a great time. But so those are the first two things that kind of were done as a licensed booking agent and I had the plaque for the wall and it still hangs up on the wall. Okay, 38 years later, it's still up there. Not dusty or anything. It's just right there. So, and nowadays, yeah, I mean, the license means absolutely nothing. It didn't mean anything then. No. But it... Procedure. Well, and you know, when you booked a lot of bands and especially in Toronto, I mean, you had to file these contracts in the union. Dues had come out for $4.30 and all this stuff. And it really meant absolutely nothing. But supposedly they were the governing body too and I'll get in a little bit more how much they helped me in my career as we go on a little bit later because yeah. it come back to kind of bite me with this four to three vote it kind of had its little waterloo up the line a little bit that that uh, it didn't quite turn out to be the the greatest thing I thought but just as a token of of uh, memories. Every year I send my $100 check in and up until two years ago I had to send a certified check and they wouldn't even accept a check from their one of their fellow brothers. It had to be a certified check.
0: And after how many years?
1: 36. Wow. They finally changed that I can send a check. So it was like you know I'd go down to the bank with this thing and I think to myself I just regret doing this but I respect how it all started. Yeah. And for the hundred bucks a year if anybody ever asks me, Am I a licensed booking agent, I can say, yes, I am. Yeah. That's so, all.
0: So back in the high school when they you did those first two shows when your teacher appointed you and you got assigned, did they know you were a licensed booking agent at that time or you had just did it and no one really knew?
1: They didn't really know that, but the guy that I that in town that was kind of the Mr. Entertainment guy, he had four or five of these rock groups going around i called them rock groups i mean they were they weren't anything like we've got today they're kind of like april wine type cover yeah. bands and all that sort of stuff um he knew i had it because he was a little bit worried because he was the only guy in town that had one Aww. and so i got this license and uh and uh, we did what you called a, a split commission on the date yeah. so i think we ended up with two and a half percent each or some stupid thing to do this thing but to me I think the first one was five hundred dollars, and the second one for the formal was seven hundred. I got a lot of money. Yeah. So you know, I think I got like you know, twenty-seven dollars or something was my share. But I only had fourteen, remember? Yeah. So now I've got twenty-seven more. So I was really you stepping almost up. doubled your money? I almost doubled my money. So, <laughs> you know, it it was kind of neat because, you know, I got a chance to see what it was all about, and I had these contracts done up, and here I was, you know. Born on a kitchen table in Cordova and singing at the country store, and you know, uh, 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 not being able to play the guitar. Now I'm booking bands at my high school. And I mean, the people on the council thought I was totally nuts because you know, a lot of them would see what I was doing. The old saying is, I was country when country wasn't cool. Well, I, yeah. Well, I was, yeah, I'm here. I am going to high school, and they're doing all kinds of stuff, and Bay City rollers, and all that stuff. And here I am, you know, listening to you know, all this old country stuff, but yet. I had this booking license now and the world was going to be on fire. And I was, I was uh, ready to go, just tackle the whole world. But the problem is I was ready, but the world wasn't ready. That was the problem. So I was a little wee tadpole in a big, big fish pond. So I had to had to, had to learn that real quick.
0: Yeah, because there would have been probably a lot, of, a lot of agents back then. Oh. Yeah.
1: Well, there was. And every little town you went to had a, had a union. Yeah. Peterborough had a union. Belleville had a union. Oshawa had one. Kingston. They all had them. Yeah. So, and it was big stuff. I mean, any of these local bands that were doing these local nightclubs, they were all union members. Only because the the cities that, that they were in were very unionized. Every yeah. place had a union. Whether it was a cheese shop or whatever it was, you were a part of some union. So, you know, I would run into these people every once in a while, these People on that board, someone would whisper to me, you know, over my dead body. Would they not give it to you? And on the other side of the coin, there was some people would say, "I know what you're doing, and you shouldn't be doing." Because I was still selling radio advertising, still in that mix completely, and booking, you know, things at a local bar in uh, in Peterborough for like six hundred dollars a week. That's what they were getting a week, not like a night. It was a week, so. And you'd make your sixty dollars commission, and you'd have to go sit in the bar from nine to one the first night to see how things went, and then you'd go out to a different bar the next night and you'd sit there nine to one and then you'd listen to them complain about hotel accommodations or whatever the case happened to be so it you know that was it was it was something I would never ever ever wish I didn't have, and I wished a lot more people had that experience because yeah. it's important to start things from the bottom and go up. Yeah, It's like moving into a mansion after you're living in a one-room apartment. You should never do that. There's no. a lot of steps in between there you should have. And I think that uh, I would never trade it for anything because for many, many, many years I ended up booking a lot of skunky old bars and a lot of places that were pretty scary-looking spots. I mean, some of those ones in Northern Ontario, let me tell you, there were some dandies. Yeah, And it was it was good for me because I could see a side of the business that I knew I wanted to get out of real fast. No matter how I had to get out of it, I wanted out of it because I knew it was killing me too. I mean, I was so, you know, I was, uh, you know, I would, I would, we would book the bands in some of these places and in the one in Peterborough, heck, I was the disc jockey on top of that. And I was doing their promotion at the same time. So, Good job and selling tickets at the local arena for a hockey game, because I needed the money, oh, yeah, I mean, one of the things I learned real quickly was that you don't go too far without the money. if the money in there, you ain't going no because nobody wants to deal with somebody that doesn't have any money, especially in this business, because yeah. usually, if they have no money when you start, they ain't got a hell of a lot left when you're finished, no. so you either get it then or you're not going to get it, and I didn't have any money i just i just i didn't have any. And um, I just had to just do whatever I had to do to survive. And whatever it
0: was, I was determined to do it. Yeah, just like a hustle. You just had to hustle, uh, do what you could in a way.
1: Well, and I think the thing, yeah, I think the thing is that's interesting is that up until this day, we're not known as a business that's necessarily legit for one thing, or a lot of credibility. So you still fight, and even today, you still fight this shady side of the business. That everybody—it's like uh, if you're in the entertainment business, you're not a lot different than a circus act or anything like that. You yeah. enter that same category.
0: Well, there's still a lot of shady people in the business.
1: Well, There is, and why that still exists today is—is is, you know, unbeknownst to me, but it yeah. does, and it, it existed a lot back in the back in the 80s especially yeah it was uh it was really you know it it, it was just something that i never knew people hated so many people so much but then i see nobody was getting paid like it would be i remember people telling me at these clubs at the club owner if they didn't have a good night stuff, they'd have to literally take a gun or a hammer and to get paid and yeah. it was all cash in those days and nine times out of ten it was one dollar bills that's what they were bringing in those bars on a Saturday night. The drafts were a buck and a half. And they'd be paying these people off. In And a lot of times they didn't get paid. They had to get pretty
0: vicious. I was, and, that, and that's still happening now. I just oh, heard of a story just like a couple of days ago from a group I was working with. And they just did a show in New York with a pretty big agent, a promoter. Um, and I think they were like a 6000 guarantee at the end of the night. You got a check for $1,700. Well, and that was it. And they're trying to get the rest. And he was like, well, that's what it is.
1: Well, it's funny. And I'm going to touch wood as we speak out of 39 years this coming Wednesday. I've never, ever, ever been beaten for a nickel. I've got the money, Yeah. but it was hard sometimes when I got it. And I'm very thankful for that. But I've also learned that if you're ever going to be aggressive at something, that's where the aggressiveness has to start. Because yeah. whether we like it or whether we don't, whether there's glamour, whether there's lights, cameras, microphone, stage, screaming people, fancy catering, whatever this business happens to be labeled as, it's still a business.
0: Yeah. And I think once you start chasing it, if you don't get it, you'll never stop chasing it. You'll never you'll, stop. Never, you'll never catch up. We Maybe. know We know someone... Uh, we both know I'm not going to mention the person's name that deals with a, an agent that's not too uh, reputable huh. um, yep. that's been chasing and you keep thinking the next show is going to make up for it and it never ever makes up for it.
1: When I look at it this way I, and you know as we get going on in here you know we can you know there's there's interesting stories that um, whether you, anybody knows who they, who the people are whether they don't the stories are not new they're not fresh they're never going to end. It's yeah. all happening. And I think that uh, one of the things I learned over the years is that it is a business and it's a very serious business. And the more credibil- credible you can become, the more longevity you will have. Yeah. And the more, there's nothing worse than dealing with somebody that you don't know at the end of the trip whether you're going to get your money. Yeah and, or the night hour, the next night. And when you can eliminate that pressure from them, um, and uh, you know, I learned many, many times over the years, the best way to get along with somebody that you've never worked with before is say, look, this money is due Friday, why don't I give it to you now? This is Monday. Yeah. You get a lot more credibility out of them and they can hardly wait to work with you again. Yeah. If on Friday you say, can you call me Saturday, you know you're, you know you're in big trouble.
0: And I just did that last week. With the group we had in the theater here, and it was like Thursday, and wired the money, and and I said, check your account; it should be there. And he said, "What be should be there?" So your payment. I said, you sent it already. I said, "I don't think you guys are going anywhere. You got a couple more days left," and and they were shocked. I mean, there was we've never, you Absolutely. know. And their first words is, just, "Now you're a real professional." Absolutely. That's the first thing they said.
1: Well, that's the whole thing, and you know, I I, I learned the same lesson. Um, With a guy named Hank Snow many years ago, I was warned that he was going to be the worst guy I ever worked with ever. He said, you'll never make it. He's vicious. He's violent. He'll scream at you and everything and he'll be awful. So I got thinking, you know, how am I going to fix that problem? So I was on a three-day tour and I had to get the bank draft cut anyway ahead of time because you can't come back in the middle of the tour and get it done. Even though we're just in Sudbury, it's still a long way back to Peterborough. So I went and got a cut and, you know, I had never met him and I introduced myself to the bus driver and he says, Hank, there's some guy out here that's got a check for you. And his name is Brian, I think. So Hank come up and and he said, Hank Snow, I said, Brian Edwards, how are you? He says, I'm great. He says, what kind of check have you got for me? And I said, well, I've got the payment. And he said, what payment? And I said, for the show. And he says, I haven't started yet. And I said, well, I'm I feel the same way. You've come all the way from Nashville. you were in Sudbury, for God's sake. Where the hell are you going? You know, yeah. you're here. So I said, it's far better for me to get this out of the way. And even in his ripe old age, he said, nobody's ever done that before. And I said, well, I'd rather introduce myself to you on a good note than you have to look at me for three days and wonder whether you're going to get the money or not. And he keeps saying, here comes that promoter. He's one of those shady guys. I know why looking at him. Yeah. He's only 19 years of age, and this guy's buying me. What's wrong with my age, and why did he ever deal with a guy like this? Now, I'm in control. He's yeah. now got that money. Hank, would you mind doing a couple radio interviews tomorrow? What's he going to say? Mm-hmm. No. He's going to say, for you, I'll do whatever you want to do. Yeah. And that's how it starts. And you just said you've learned the same thing over the years, that when you start off things with people, not only showing them that you're financially able to deal with it, but... Everything else goes along with it. When they're here, they're treated well, or on the road, wherever it happens to be, you don't have to lay a caviar and all that sort of stuff. Just no. treat them nice. Treat them like human beings yeah. and try to be nice to them and everything else. And I think that in the long run, you can win. And I, I don't know. I, I, I've always found that's been the, been, been the key.
0: You yeah, and, and the end re- result is that the audience wins. Well, that's just what those I was. the t- ones who bought the tickets, and
1: well, I was just going to say, you know, if I ever had to put anything into priority, even today, I've got a, I've got a list of priorities in this industry, and number one priority for many, many, many years. And without this priority, we all have nothing. And that's the people that put out the money. And a lot of people don't think of those people. It happens to be the audience. Yeah. They're number one, as far as I'm concerned. And um, you try to treat them with respect, give them a fair show for the money and not be afraid of them yeah. like they don't know who i am but standing out there if somebody's got a problem where they want to most times they want to tell you how much they enjoyed themselves you should never be afraid to do that yeah um i remember you know we we're on a tour one time down in um florida i was working with this act i never worked before but I mean, i'm to see the show and the guy says great come on backstage we're going to hang out during the intermission i said are you crazy i didn't come over all this way to see this show to hang out backstage, I want to be out there with those people. Yeah. Why would you want to be out with them? I said, well, first of all, it's always nice to hear what they saw of the show, being they paid the money. And second of all, I get to know who this audience is. If I'm not out there, I don't know who the heck they are. No. He says, God, man, you're weird. And I said, well, <laughs> I'm weird, but I don't know any other way to do it. I mean, if you treat the audience great and you treat the entertainers great, you can't go wrong, no, because you can last for as long as you want without, because the audience begins to know, you 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 respect them and feel for them, and it's the same with the artist, you know, and I think, I don't want to say it's frustrating to me because it isn't, because I, I I mean, it's a big industry here. We all survive whether yeah. you're a boxing promoter, golf promoter, hockey promoter, whatever the heck you happen to be, or you're a circus, or if you promote new country, old country, ballet, whatever you promote. It's a big industry here. And we all have a space in here. And I think that when you see people that have lasted a long time, they last a long time for a reason. Usually not because they didn't pay anybody or because they were nasty to somebody or treating the audience horribly. All those things usually are intact or they don't make it. It's like, and, you know, I, I, I just think, that if more people, I wish there was a course that could be taught, and I'm not sure there is. Yeah. Because the old saying is, there's an old country song, if you can't feel it, it ain't there. Yeah. And it's true. If you don't under understand it, there's no way you can, you can't open a book and say, okay, now, when this artist comes in, you treat them like this, and you do this, and you do that. When an audience asks a question, here's how you answer. If you ain't got it, and you can't absorb it or pick it up, you're not going to get it. It's, there's no way.
0: Yeah, and that translates really to everyone in the music industry, right down to, you know, we, we talk all the time. An artist may want to go out, and he has to pick. I'm not going to pick on drummers. I'm just saying, or say, a drummer, for for instance. You're not always going to pick the best drummer that's available. You're going to pick who you rather spend the next five, six, seven weeks with on the road. And as long as they can do the job, it's way more important that you get along and there's a good relationship. And that translates back to the audience. It translates back to your dealings with the artist. And it it trickles to every facet of it. And, you know, your relationship with the venue and, and everything.
1: Well, you know, there's nothing better than getting a compliment back such as this we've never worked with a more professional organization that started with the initial phone call right to the time the bus pulled out of the parking lot. Everything on there was bang on. Yeah. So you look at that and you say, now um, that means everything because then you know, you've got, you know what you're doing and the people also that are, in there, know what you're doing too. Yeah, you continue. know, with advancing all of our shows and being the technical director for as many years as you have with us, that there's probably more times you get off the phone and you say, "God, I was frustrated with all this sort of stuff. They, they didn't, you know, it just wasn't right." But yeah. you kept your, you know, you're your calm. You got the job done. You did it properly. When you're done that, people, all that stuff, they 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 appreciate it yeah. at the end of the day. You go through some frustrations, but you come away from there with a clean reputation and all of it's done, and it all has to start somewhere. I mean, Not one person, if anybody ever thinks this, then they're reading their own publicity too much. If one person thinks it's them that's doing all this stuff, they're wrong. No. Because the whole team has to be very, very important. Yeah. You can't do anything. You know, you just can't.
0: Yeah, you know, I think of all the times on a technical end of things, you go in a venue, you could be as frustrated as anything. You hear about their stories. They say, oh, the the crew that just came in last night, how horrible they were and they, uh, how badly they were treated. And, and sometimes you just got to be able to know, be able to read the people you're working with, be able to look at their room, look at the equipment and decide how good I can make this. You know, you, there's going to be a limit to my day. So let's figure out what the limit is and make, make it work to the best of of the venue and the crew and whatever it is. Because it's going to be different everywhere you go. Sometimes the PA is going to be great, sometimes it's going to be terrible. If everything's terrible in there, I mean, you pretty well know it as you're going in anyway. So if you didn't know that before you went in, then you didn't do your job. And But there's no sense complaining about it once you're there because you've already signed off on it. I mean, it, well, it is I, what it is. Well, Make is the it best old, of it.
1: The old saying goes, when somebody says you did a good job, you say to yourself, I wasn't hired to do a bad job. Yeah. So if you're going to do this thing, Whatever it is we do, and sometimes I'm not even sure myself, whatever it is we do. And somebody's often asked me, I said, you know, let me think about it and I'll let you know because there's some days you say to yourself, what, is, what, is, what, what do I do? And, you know, and I'm kind of saying that kind of tongue in cheek, but in reality, you wonder sometimes, um, and I think it comes from frustrations too, probably, that you begin to wonder where you fit in and why and how it all kind of happened. But when you look at everything, I know in my case especially there's always been really really good people around me that make everything look great and it's it's just it's important to have that and i think over the years you can you can pick good people you can pick um you know somebody says to me i can do this 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 and this and i've done this and i've done that and And i said well look you give me 20 minutes with you and I'll tell you how good you are. You don't have to tell me that stuff. You can send me a resume that says all this stuff on there. And if it looks too good, I wonder why you're not there in the first place. Why are you calling me? Like that's one of the things I'm always concerned about. Um, So in the whole scheme of things, what I've also learned is that what's necessarily good for this guy or this lady or whatever the case is, isn't necessarily good for me or vice versa. Um, You know, when I was booking these, go back to this deal, when I was booking these clubs and all this sort of stuff and learning how to do the bit, And um, one of the things that was really unique with the Sean connection was that there was a festival in Peterborough called the, um, it's called Music Fest now, but it was called the Arts and Water Festival in those days. They wanted Tommy Hunter to Mm -hmm. come and perform at at this festival. Now remember, I'm 18 years of age now. Yeah. And I'm trying to book this guy that's got a national television show on, and you know, uh, probably in more demand than any country act in the country at the time. And uh, I remember I remember Sean had his home number and calling up there and he said, "Who did you say you were again?" And I told him, and he said um, "Well, you better call my lawyer in London, Ontario, Sam Lerner. So I called him, and so Sam had said, "Well, you know, I don't know. He doesn't like to deal with a lot of new agents and stuff because, you know, we got burnt by a couple of them out west and we're not really sure anymore. And I said, well, he's known Sean Eyre a long time there has been a disc jockey in Peter And He said, well, he knows a lot of disc jockeys. That's how the lawyer responded back to him. And I said, well, look, this date is going to say, how good are you for the money? And I said, well, I'm about as good as the festival is. He said, well, that's a bad thing to say because he just got beat for a festival out in Western Canada last week and we're suing them for $60,000. And oh my God, good start. I said, well, I'll tell you this much. I know the city backs the festival. And I said, whatever we can do to make Tommy comfortable, we'll make it happen. I don't know, I'll get back to you. So I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. Well, finally, I got a hold of him again. He said, yeah, yeah, I've been trying to get Tommy. He says, well, look it, we'll do it. And he gave me the price and he says, before he goes on that stage, I want that certified check in his answer. He's not going to even get out of the car, no problem. Now remember, my experience at this stage of the game, if I got a $1,000 on that contract, it was a big deal. Yeah. Well now, here we go. Now we're going into this next level all of a sudden. So we get the date all signed up and I send the deposit through and the whole bit, which in those days, Thank God they did things like a business like we should all be doing today, but that necessarily isn't the case. There was an actual contract and somebody actually signed it and a deposit actually took place that day. And everybody read those contracts and paid attention to them, which was kind of neat. So quite a quite a novelty. So we got that all done and uh, now it's show day. So now here we are. We come in there and uh, so... I see Tommy pull up and I go over to the car and he says, um, I want to see the guy that booked me here on this date. And I said, well, it was me. And he says, it can't be you. It must've been your father. And I said, no, it was me. He says, how old are you? And I said, I'm going to be 18 in two weeks. He says, you're 17 years of age and you're booking me on a show like this. And I said, and here's the money. And he looked at me and he says, I still don't believe it was you. I couldn't be you. So the show got all done and and I gave him my invoice for my commission. So he said, now who is this payable to? Your dad? And I said, he couldn't get it through his head that it was me. And I said, no, no, it's me. And I said, here's the name of the company. And he said, I can't believe that you at your age are booking a show like me. And not only have you got it booked and everything was right. So... That kind of opened up things now to a level I'd never seen before. And I rather liked it because it took a heck of a lot of booking bands in a club for a month at a time to make up for what this check was. It was a big deal for me. So now I could actually go down to the bank and say, hey, look, remember that letter you wrote? This is the the deal. So anyway, that was kind of the little touch of the iceberg now. I've had a chance to say, um, okay, I've gone from this, now i am gone to this part. Now, what was interesting was I could now say I'd book Tommy Hunter. Yeah. So when I've talked to somebody else, I say, well, who else have you booked? And I'd say, well, uh, I, booked, um, I booked Jack Bailey and Peterborough, and I booked uh, Patsy Hamilton and Peterborough, and I booked Joey Elwood in a group called FIRE. And they look at me and say, who in the heck is that? But as soon as you say I booked Tommy Hunter, they said, wow, man, that must have been something. So now you've got this credibility that says, still don't have any money. But it was to the point where at least I could um, do something on another level that kind of said, I stand a chance at it. But I'm still this little wee fish trying to swim up this pond. And I wasn't getting anywhere. So I thought, well, what I'm going to try to do now is I'll get a hold of my buddy, and I knew him from years ago in Toronto, named David Peaver. Now, David was an agent at the time that looked after a group called Canadian Zephyr, and he discovered a guy named Harold McIntyre. Yeah. And he used to do a show in Toronto called the Policeman's Association Show. We'd bring in George Strait and Gene Watson and, yeah, and George Jones yeah. and all that other
0: stuff. That was a big deal.
1: That was a huge deal. So David and I got along fairly well, but I was still an 18-year-old kid from Peterborough, and I was going to get into a business pretty soon that these guys have ruled for years. Now remember, they're warm and fuzzy, but I'm still this little outsider, and I've got an opinion now, and that's even worse, because there's nothing worse than somebody that's just booked Tommy Hunter And has got an opinion and a bit of an attitude. Because that definitely came with the territory, trust me. I thought that the world was at my fingertips and nothing could ever stop it, ever. So thank God for a guy like David that could bring me down to where I needed to be brought down to rather quickly. Because um, I needed to be brought down. And I knew that.
0: Yeah, because you're probably a bit of a high from from booking that. And
1: and don't tell me, I'll tell you type thing, you know. So... I kind of got, you know, another unique thing happened with David. He called me one day and he says, you know, I've got this show up in Toronto. And it's an old country singer. And it's old. Back in 1980, they were using that term. An old country singer named Kitty Wells. And I said to Sean, man, this would be great. And my mom used to rock me to sleep saying, how far is heaven, for God's sakes. I Mm -hmm. know that song like the back of my head. And I said, you know, we should take a shot on that thing. So David and I, strangely enough, became agents together. But in this case, we had to, David kind of act as a broker. And he sold us the show, I think for $2,000 or something. It wasn't a lot of money. But we'd put this show on the Lindsay Exhibition Grounds. And for some strange reason, I clicked with her husband, Johnny Wright. I don't know why, but I did. And again, I'm this 18 year old and I think the fact of anybody in any business, especially in the business that they're in, if anybody was 18 years old at an interest, <laughs> people that were in their seventies, that's a pretty big thing yeah. that doesn't happen. And I'm sure it doesn't happen today much either. So he had said, um, I wish you guys would bring us up to Canada sometime. And I said, we will. And he said, no, you're like all the other agents. You never will. But he liked me because we made a poster up and I put his name on the poster. Oh, and right. I think he was so thrilled that I put the name Johnny Wright and Bobby Wright on a poster and nobody else did. They yeah. called it the Kitty Well Show. He was smart enough to know she was the draw, but they were the show. Yeah. The three of them were. So anyway, one thing leads to another. And the next year, we bring them into Bob Cajun. And it's even bigger. Well, we meet again. I'm sure it almost as if we never met before. But I'll tell you one thing he did remember. He remembered the fact that I knew to put his name on stuff. So he got home to Nashville and he said, Why don't you come down to Daytona Beach? We're going on a, a holiday with the family. Well, I just started to cry. I just lost it. I mean, here I am. I'm going to Florida with my sister Ella in tow. And we're going to Daytona Beach, the Hawaiian Inn. With a country superstar <laughs> for a week, Hawaiian
0: in in Florida,
1: Hawaiian in in Florida in July. So, <laughs> so I rounded up enough money, and down we went. We ended up flying into this place. So, <laughs> here I am. I I haven't got again. I could, I keep bringing this money part up because it was actually funny. Here I am down at Daytona Beach, and we're having a ball playing water volleyball and. Drinking pina coladas out by the pool. I mean, it was great. I was in my glory. Yeah. You know, we weren't supposed to be allowed to be drinking at that age, but we certainly managed to get a few winners. So he asked me for breakfast one morning, and a strange thing happened to me that turned my life around completely. He said, I want you to represent us in Canada. <laughs> I looked over at and I i was just starstruck, and I said, Yes. I'd be, I'm all over this. I never went out of Peterborough, for God's sakes, other than the trip to Florida, let alone going across Canada. Yeah. So he says, "Now I got this, I got this date in Moncton, New Brunswick at a, at a nightclub called the Urban Corral. And he says, now we're doing two nights in there. He says, I'll give you this date. And can you get a few tie-in dates to go with it? I said, well, I'm sure. No problem. Yeah. So all the confidence in the world, you know. So he shook hands and he said, well, until further notice, you'll be our agent in Canada. So I come home and I didn't know what the heck I'd got myself into, but it sounded intriguing to me. And I thought, first Tommy Hunter, and now we're booking an act from the Grand Old Aubrey in Nashville. You mean, my God, what else can be better than this? So I went to work on this thing. And we ended up doing 28 dates in a row that ended in Calgary, Alberta. That started with a little thing. And I was in places I'd never been in in my life. I, in those days, you didn't look things up on the internet. You got no. on directory assistant, and you got to hold all the nightclubs you could find. Because she'd do anything, no matter where it was. If there was a dollar involved and kept the band working, Johnny do it. Yeah. So that's where that education comes with me. So we did 28 days. I mean, it was just... That's huge.
2: Whew. Yeah. <laughs>
1: I was on the road for a month yeah. living on that bus. That's how much I like b bu- that's why I like buses so much. And we were on that bus and uh it was just the most frightening experience I ever had because I was so nervous every night that I didn't know I didn't know what to do. I didn't know about non residence taxes, I didn't know about any of that stuff whatsoever. And they didn't sleep in a hotel room either. Yeah. I mean you kind of washed and everything else you needed to do on that bus going down that road whether you liked it or whether you didn't or whether there were six people in there before you you were doing that Yeah. and I kind of grew up and that didn't happen in my world at home that yeah. wasn't something we did you know it was kind of all new to me and you know seeing people in the morning first thing that you kind of had visions of that you didn't quite have the same vision of at that <laughs> time of night you know it was just all kind of unique to me so we did that tour and I got off of that thing and I, I don't know what, I didn't know what to think. So shortly after that, I, I, I really thought that, you know, I needed to kind of make a decision now. Now I'm getting close to 19. I'm not living at home at this time. I'm out on my own um the agency's somewhat going i'm not sure whether i'm an agent am i a promoter and i'm a manager and i'm a merchandise salesman and my whole, do i whole book hotels do i what, what 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 do i do so i thought you know i don't like this label of being i'm an agent i don't like that because i thought so wasn't i wasn't an agent no. i was i would i I was a promote. I don't know what I don't know. I don't know what I was. I yeah. was somebody that put shows together. I mean, I had a license from the... called me an agent, but I didn't know that's what I was or not. So I thought, well, I carried on a little bit longer, and I thought it would be a big thing to really dive in. So a lady named Charlie McLean had a number one oh. song on the radio at the time, and. My buddy Doug Nobbs at the Memorial Centre in Peterborough had hired me to come in and work the hockey games. And and Doug and I clicked real well. We were both from Cordova. So that was a small world. I mean, so Doug knew a lot of the family, and I knew him, and he knew Sean quite well. So we were, you know, we were talking one day, and he would tell me about the business in the old days and working with a lot of these acts, like Liberace and all these people, and I was quite fascinated by all that. So... I'd always liked Gene Watson and I liked Charlie McLean. I don't know why, Charlie had some big records out. Yeah. She was the flavor of the day, she was great. And I loved Gene Watson, just thought he was the be all and end all. So I decided to go out and I would buy a show from Nashville. Now here I am, my credibility now, I booked Kitty Wells and I booked Tommy Hunter. Well there's the two right there in the front window. So now I'm going to book Gene Watson. And I'm going to take Charlie McLean out. So I booked them for four days. We do Sudbury, Sault Ste. Marie, North Bay, and Peterborough. And I had committed about 60,000 US at which I mean, there's no, I mean, there's no way I have that kind of money. Yeah. So, but I thought that didn't matter. It would, it would, no matter what you did, it was going to work. Yeah. So we put them out and on sale and everything. And, yeah, As we got closer and closer and closer to the date, there's something that wasn't happening. It was called people buying tickets. And in those days, the rule of thumb was if you sold 1,000 tickets beforehand, you'd sell 1,000 at the door. Yeah. 50-50, no matter what, no matter who you had in there. So Peterborough was fine. I mean, I think we actually had 1,000 people here, which was big. Yeah. 1750 a ticket or $1,850, whatever it was. That was, that was. that was a big deal. Yeah. But there was a problem with the other three. We weren't quite at that stage. So, using the little theory I learned, I thought, well, if this buy one get one type of thing at the door comes true, then I'm going to be fine. We're going to we're going to be no problem. We'll at least make we'll at least break even. Well, our friends in North Bay Sudbury and Ste. Marie obviously didn't read the same manual I did because that didn't happen. Wow. So the net loss in the tour was about thirty-eight thousand bucks. So. At the time I was living with Sean Eyre and his wife Donna, who uh certainly taught me everything in life, but they were they were very um gracious and wonderful people, and they were able to co-sign a loan for me in those days for thirty-eight grand at twenty-three and a half percent interest. Wow. And it was absolutely frightening because I'd gone from all this high and now I was down and out yeah i had nothing i lost everything and lost the 38 grand i was down 38 grand so i was able to deal and keep going with these little shows i was doing and everything and at least pay the interest on the loan i could get that part done and
0: going back you still you paid the act the acts got paid yeah
1: yep they did nobody would ever see that because i knew if that ever happened once. In those days, they didn't give you a third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seven, eight, nine, 10 chance to let you keep no. digging the hole deeper. If you had a, the old saying is if you had a half a hole, you still had a hole, no yeah. matter how it was, you were in there. So I thought, what am I gonna do now? So I thought, you know what? I'm gonna go back to what I know best. So I picked up the phone and called Johnny Wright. I said, you know, there's an old country singer that I really, really like for a long time. And he will never respond to my email, not my emails, emails, yeah. Never respond (laughs) to my letters or anything. And his name is Wilf Carter. Johnny says, hell, I know Wilf Carter. He said, we're doing a show with him in Hamilton in two weeks. I said, well, would you introduce him to me? He said, yeah, you come down there to this thing. So I go down there, there's 17 country acts on this show. Little Jimmy Dickens, Porter Wagoner, you name it. They were on there by the ton. The old package shows. And Wilf was one of the acts. So Johnny had introduced me to him. And uh, I said to him, I've always wanted to do, and of course, Johnny jumped into this bit of well, he's the finest promoter that Canada's ever seen. We've done hundreds of dates with this guy. I'm, I'm only 19 years old for God's sake. We're doing hundreds of them. <laughs> anyway, so Wilf said, Well, Johnny, the only way I do the tour is if you and Kitty come with me. Well, that's exactly what Johnny wanted to hear. Yeah. So we had done five dates the next summer and Wilf Carter had just turned 80 years of age, the first tour we did. Wow. So I'm going into the bank now. You can picture this. Here I come walking in and they want to report on how I'm going to pay this 38 grand. Yeah. I said, well, I got this really neat thing. If you can lend me 20,000 more, I'm going to do this big project. And the guy says, well, how old are these people? And I said, well, I think Kitty Wells is about 72. And he just sat back in the chair and looked at me. He said, well, how old is this other guy, this Skip Carter? And I said, Wilf Carter. He said, yeah, Wilf Carter, I mean. He's 80. He says, 80, and you want me to lend you $20,000 and you're taking an 80-year-old out? Are you crazy? And I said, well, he draws a lot of people. He said, yeah, but what happens if he doesn't make it? I said, well, I'm going to tell you something. If you don't make it, I'm in big trouble anyway. So what the heck? You're already in for thirty eight. Now you might as well go in for fifty eight. Well, believe it or not, he gave me the money. Wow. But back to the co signers again. They had to sign for that too. Yeah. So we went and did that tour, and in five days I'd made enough money to pay the twenty thousand back and the thirty eight grand that we had outstanding. Wow. That's great. So when I when I have his picture above my head every day and it says, Have a nice day, Wilf Carter, I do have a nice day because thanks to him and Johnny and Kitty on the road there, that tour paid off everything. Yeah. And it was just it was just something that um it was almost as if this gift had come down and sat in my lap and said, Here you go again, making a mistake and it's paying off. Yeah. So I was ever so grateful and and you know, they opened up my eyes to a lot of things that led me to be able to then get into the booking of fairs. Why not? Why not? Kitty Wells and the fair, you know, I was, I was, I thought, what the heck? I'm going to go try to promote them at these fairs. So we did, and we did, we did several of them actually. Ron Sparling was a great agent up in Ottawa, Ontario, still a great agent in Ottawa, and he controlled probably 80% of the fair market, but he liked them and he knew them. And he was so happy that, he could deal with them with an agent in canada because what i learned to do with all these nashville acts is they didn't want to come to canada for one day no any need to have three
0: yeah so if ron took even a, though it's the same distance to go to florida to do one show closer yeah closer it, it's, it was this
1: canada thing yeah. i needed three dates so i learned that from johnny he'd say well if we're going to come up there we need to have three dates so that was fine so i got to uh between ron sparling and janet walter williams and myself we all of a sudden had a meeting, and we said, "Look, let's all work together, and we'll do these fairs and we did It was here I am going into this fair convention in Toronto, and I'm like a fish out of water again because no. all these agents been doing these fairs for forever and now all of a sudden, here comes this kid with a polyester suit jacket on from Peterborough, and he's looking after Kitty Wells that thank God in those days, that was a big thing for these fairs. They, they just loved it. Yeah, And we were able to do, we could do three or four in a row and make it work. And if we couldn't, at least I could put them in the Carolotta Club downtown Toronto for a nightclub for three nights to at least pay the band. That was the deal. Pay yeah. the band and we'll be there. And, so, and they do two shows a night in those places oh, that yeah. were long and yeah. sometimes three if we had to, it didn't wow. matter. So we could do whatever you needed to do. So that, introduced me to another area that i was never very familiar with at all all i knew was that we went down to the royal york and i was going to have a room there there was a some kind of a suite or whatever there was a room with a parlor thing on it It was going to cost me like eight hundred 800 a night to have this thing to be part of this industry so any money we made on the fares we had already invested in the suite at the royal york anyways you know hope to heck something would happen yeah so it it kind of became rather unique that uh that I was able to get into that business, not huge, but enough to say, okay, now I'm in the fair business too. But yeah. now we've got nightclubs we can do. We can lose money in arena shows. We know how to do that, and now we're going to do this fair business. So there was a group outside of Peterborough called the Leahy family. There was eleven brothers and sisters that. Sean knew quite well because we used to run a lot of fiddle contests around and the kids were all in the fiddle contest. So they were with an, an agent in Toronto. Vivian Murphy was her name. Oh gosh. And she would put them on all kinds of stuff. Yeah, I remember now, the Vivian. problem with Vivian Murphy was in those kids eyes, she was old. Yeah. She wasn't old. She probably was 56 what I am now, but she was considered old because those kids were kids. Yeah. And they really got intrigued what I was doing. They kind of thought this would be kind of fun. So I used to go to the farm and we'd have these meetings and I'd go meet the mother and father and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, the kids would be pushing so hard to get somebody that was their age because, if nothing else, they would at least have somebody that could think somewhat the way they did. Little did they know, I didn't know how to think as a 19-year-old. I was already 45 yeah. In the way I thought. Yeah. But I knew that audience because that audience that came to see the Leahies were the forty five and fifty five and sixty five year old people, if not older. So they knew I the mom and dad knew I knew that. Yeah. So they knew that if nothing else I was safe enough to go with them. That I could, you know, get to the point where so I signed this this management contract with with the Lahey's. I didn't know what the word manager even meant. I had to look it up in the dictionary and then I had to get some papers in that somebody had mailed me on what a manager was in the entertainment industry because I had no idea. No I mean, Google. You know Google. No know nothing. So I thought yeah I think I can do that. That would that be a lot of fun. So they bring me out a stack of contracts from over the years from the Calgary Stampede, Edmonton Klondike days, the Regina Buffalo days, the Super X in Saskatoon to the Thunder Bay exhibition to you name it and they had done them all because they would just had this reputation across Canada well I hadn't even been to those places let alone done them so I send out this big thing that I'm now the manager of the Leahys and we're going to do this and we're going to do that we're going to book this and we're going to book that so the first year we had done every exhibition I think from one end of Canada to the other because they were such a good family act yeah. that it would work. You know, they could go out there and step dance and sing and do their thing. And there was such a novelty that it worked out very, very well. So we had done, you know, and they, we got along famously well. We would just, it was just, it was almost too well because when you get that close to somebody, um, if something starts to go south, it doesn't make it any easier. No. But uh, we were able to do probably about five, maybe six years all across North America. A lot of dates in the US. And, uh, you know, I, I, it led me into um, an industry I'd never been involved with before. Yeah, And it let me do stuff uh, where fairs were kind of unique, as you know, you worked enough of them yourself, yep. that they never were built for putting live bands and stuff into entertainment. Matter of fact, it was almost like oil and water because wherever the horses and the horse show and the in the tractor poles and everything that was number one and for you to interfere by setting some kind of a snake across the track that knew a sound thing that was just yeah why would you do that to us so it became as much fun as it was and unique and as much eating as much dust as you could eat in a week it was just kind of a new a new a new thing for me it was able to to book places that i never had a chance to do And there lies our association. When we first started working together back mid 80s, we first started, I was booking your show in various fairs in Canada and the US. And it was because of that initial experience that I was able to do that. And I could understand what you did. I could understand the audience. I knew the fair boards and all that sort of stuff. So it all, it became more apparent in that industry more than anything. As I stayed in it, the longer I stayed into it, the more I realized that if you weren't connected with any of those people, you weren't going anywhere.
0: No, it's very... That that industry was really a relationship-based.
1: The worst I'd ever seen. Yeah. Especially Ontario, we already had the association. Mm-hmm. Thanks to Ron Sparling and Janet Williams and you know uh, uh, other agents that we were involved with, we could work together. Yeah. But once you got west of Thunder Bay, that all disappeared. Yeah. Now you're back again. Here I am again. I'm um, this new... Kid on the block, the calling card was I had the Leahy family, the Walters family, Kitty Wells, little Jimmy Dickens, Tommy Hunter, so on and so forth. It that lent the credibility which I needed because without that I wouldn't have had any of it. As years went on, whether it was the Fair Convention that traveled across Canada at the CAE or the one in Toronto at the Royal York or the one in Las Vegas you would become a more of a familiar person. Somebody would walk by and say, I remember you from last year. If you don't mind, I'm going to finish this cigar, I'll blow the smoke in your face and then we'll talk. And that's basically what it was. A bunch of people that were buying entertainment that usually smoked cigars and they were awful to deal with and it was horrible. So, But you tolerated there was a lot of great people in that industry like bob gray from edmonton who ran the klondike days and and our connection was kind of a unique one although it came through booking the Leahys and whatnot the guy that ran the klondike days was actually originally from woodstock ontario and moved to peterborough and ran the fair there and in colin forbes yeah. so that's where we so when colin found out he was in with a guy from peterborough he felt quite good and told Careful. Bob that, to, you know, to feel feel good with this guy, he was great and the whole bit. So not that I I ever believed I was great, but in Colin's eyes I was and I just didn't even question it. Bob Bob was good to work with and he worked, worked well
0: with us. And even though, you know, you're dealing with Canada, there are, and I think there still is, there if you're from Ontario and you're working in the West that was not oh boy. looked upon as being oh something boy. that was very friendly they were didn't want anybody from ontario or from the east they would say to step on in their territory at all
1: when you talk to most westerners very few of them their their east is winnipeg and that's yeah. if they get to there they've gone east and they have never trusted anybody from ontario no and it's worse than the east a lot of people have always thought i'm from the maritimes when i'm down there i never say i'm not but i say thank you very much because I never want to be considered, especially from Toronto. That's the last place you want to be from in this industry, and down there. Because yeah. they don't like people from Toronto. No. In Newfoundland, they'll tell you, they hate you. And yeah. that's just the way it is. And so I'm very cautious to say, yeah, I'm from Ontario. Or oh, you're not in Toronto, where I say, are you kidding? I wouldn't live in that city to save my soul. And it's true. But I certainly was very cautious too. But you're absolutely bang on when you say there's territories. It certainly is very much so. And I think when you get the confidence of a westerner even if they're a transplanted from ontario they're still a westerner and they get that mentality you would you're welcome to no end as long as they trust you because there was i guess there must have been something especially over the years where ontario people always look down at the west or they look down on the east and it carried through in this business too they always thought because they were from. You're always expensive. When you're from Toronto. You were expensive. Yeah, that was the big thing. Or don't tell me what to do just because you're from Toronto. Yeah. So I was lucky. I could say, look at, them, I'm from Peterborough. Oh, they say the Peterborough Pete's. I said exactly the hockey team. That's what connection was. It, comfort level, perfect. Then so. Yeah. Anyway, that was kind of a that was kind of a unique industry that that. Um, uh, I liked a lot. I liked, especially like the bigger ones when you went into Edmonton and you went into Calgary or you went into Vancouver, it was more of a, you weren't tripping over the track that the same horse had decided to do his business on before you started. You weren't they coming.
0: Had a, yeah. They had a spot for entertainment,
1: proper stages. Yeah. They, they were big time. I mean, you go in there, the sound of lighting and sound men and lighting people that were already there when you got there, their proper dressing rooms. And it was just this real neat buzz. I loved it. I think we did, I think Tommy Hunter did the Klondike days. God, I think it was 14 or 15 or 16 years in a row. It was a lot. Wow. And you would go back there and you felt like it was just like coming home. You know, it was really, really good. So that was kind of a unique, unique part of the business that then at times I really miss it. And then at times I don't. And I think doing, what we do now versus what we did then, I think it was a great experience. To, so if we had to go back and do what we could, but it's something we it's can not do. That, without...
0: It's not what it used to be, though. No, it's, God um, no. Jeez, I mean, no. back then you consider uh, when the fair came to town, that was that was the big thing for the year. Oh boy, that I mean, was it. You know, Klondike days were home. how long was that? Two weeks usually, two and a half weeks. It was it was ten days, ten and days. so it
1: was. Um, Edmonton, Calgary was 10 days and Red Deer was eight. Yeah. So they, and you could work them all. Like yeah. you could do a little string there. Like when we worked the Carlton Show Band in those markets, we would do, you know, we do all of all of Calgary, all of Edmonton and two or three or four days in the middle in Red Deer just to kind of bridge it through. Yeah. And that's, that brought you 24 days. Well, that's, And they were smart enough out there. They knew enough to come to you and say, look it, the three of us will get together. This is the money. Yeah. It might not be the money you want a day, but it's a heck of a lot more money you'd make in a month doing anything else. Exactly. So you went and did it. And they knew, coming from Ontario, the cost of getting out there, you might as well do all of them. So the bargaining power was always in their, in their favor. Yeah. It's funny because we booked the Leahys one time in, um, in Vancouver at the p e They had showcased at the IATSE Fair Convention in Las Vegas. And Mrs. Leahy really wasn't warm and fuzzy with the agent at that time. And he just kind of gave her the creeps a little yeah. bit. So she said, you know, I've got this this guy's phone number that was running the P&E in Vancouver, and he really expressed interest in the kids. So, of course, I called him, and he said, oh, God, I've been trying to get a hold of some agent for the ladies. He said, we've got 14 days out here this year. Can you make it? And I said, well, heck, yeah, we can make it, no problem. So uh, I'd never done anything in British Columbia at all because that was a way out there for me. So we went out there and did this thing. Well, what was unique in the middle of all of it, CTV television called, and a girl named pa- uh, pa- Patty Janetta, I think her last name was Janetta, I think it's Patty, um, was doing a television show, a Christmas show, and they wanted the Leahys on it. Yeah. And I said, well, the only problem is we're in Vancouver at the P&E. Oh, she says, that's too bad. She said, you know, I wish we could get this to work. She said, the taping is at 10 o'clock in the morning, and I'm thinking... Ten o'clock in the morning, that's seven o'clock in Vancouver. I said, can I get back to you? And she said, well, I've already written them off the list. I said, not, just not yet. I said, just, just leave it with me. So I got on the phone and called Air Canada. And I said, what's your last flight out of Vancouver? Going to Toronto. This, well, it leaves at midnight. I said, what time does it get in there? She says, 6.45, something and shows taping at 10. Lands at six forty-five. They don't sleep anyway, so <laughs> what the heck? So I said, uh, um, "What time are you done?" And she says, uh, "Well, we could probably get them out of here by about one and I'm thinking that's only ten-thirty in Vancouver, and our show's not till five o'clock.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So I said, uh, "I'm gonna talk to the kids." Well, of course, anything to do. I'd just taken the kids on a white water rafting ride in the middle of the mountains out in British Columbia the night before we went and stayed overnight up there. And here I am taking all these little kids under the age of eight on this whitewater raft, <laughs> come whipping down this can where the thing was called the Canyon River out there. And I thought these kids were wired by this point. So I said, guess what we're going to do tomorrow? And they said, oh, what are we going to do? We're all excited. I said, how would you like to do Patty Jeanette's Christmas show? And they said, great where is it and i said it's toronto and they said when i said tomorrow (laughs) and they said yeah let's do it and i said we're gonna fly out at midnight so i'm not flying out you guys are gonna fly it i'm staying here because if something happens the plane's late i gotta come up with some excuse of where the heck you are so they flew back from toronto and they went and did that television show and they pulled that thing off like no tomorrow because the uh, the choreographer had worked with them before, and he knew when you got little kids that step dance and play, just let them do what they do, and you've got a television show right there. Yeah, have them smile, stick their hands up when they're done, and you're and you're good. Yeah. So they flew back. They landed at 4:30 at the Vancouver airport, and our show was at six o'clock. Wow, you talk about hustle. I picked them up in this old van I had, and we brought them back there, and. I never did say a word to anybody because I knew the guy that ran that P&E would have a heart attack that I'd done something like that. He had a heart attack when I took them on that, on that, on that, uh, on that tube ride down the, uh, down the friends, the Fraser Canyon. So anyway, they come out and did that show and they did three shows that night when they got back and they were absolutely incredible and was probably the most adventurous thing I've ever done or ever will do. I mean, we've been pretty tight at some of these flights and, you know, two shows in two different spots in one day. I've done lots of times, but that was something. So it was the fair business kind of led me to that. And that was probably one of the the most challenging and greatest experiences that I ever had. Yeah. So it was good.
0: So eventually, obviously, you, you kind of faced yourself out of the fair business and uh, to some degree and then slid yourself more into touring in the the soft seat performing art center type market was there kind of something in between there or what happened in between there
1: well between all of that back to johnny Wright again he called me one day and wanted me to come down and spend a few days in nashville and they lived in a little place called madison tennessee yeah and he kind of thought it'd be fun that i moved down to nashville and start working and they had this little stone house that he had about maybe half a block from the museum. They owned owned the whole block pretty, pretty well at that time. And there's an old stone house that he wanted me to stay in and start this agency in across the road from there, from beside them. But I couldn't stay in that house. There was a funeral home across the road, and it bothered me. I'm thinking there's no way that I'm staying in that house by myself down here across from a funeral home. So I said I'd stay for... I think I stayed for two weeks and I lived in the Fiddler's Inn Hotel out by Music Valley Drive. Cracker Barrel was close to there so I could walk up the hill and be at Cracker Barrel. So I took enough clothes down there and I decided that he had an office for me in his place because he knew I wasn't stuck on staying in that house so he'd set up an office for me where, where the museum was and everything. So I went in on a Friday and I stayed the weekend and then so now comes Monday. So it's my first day in Nashville. So here I am now, now I'm really getting big, man. I'm, I'm moving from Peterborough to Nashville. Not anything in between, no Toronto or Hamilton or in Oshawa or nothing. Yeah. Bang, I'm going right down. I'm gonna take Nashville on, I'm ready. I'm 21 years old, can hardly wait, so here I go. So I go down there and uh, I get down there Monday. I set up a phone line and everything. So we have a couple of meetings together, about these dates we're going to do. Now I'm still green as grass at home, let alone, I know nothing about the U S whatsoever. Other than when I'm 21, I'm going to Las Vegas. I knew that part, but that's about all I knew. (laughs) And I'd been to Nashville once before. So he had me go out to lunch with a couple of these agents that were down there. One guy's name was Joe Taylor. And, um, and then that guy, he used to look after Fair and Young, and uh, we went we went out and had lunch together. So they're going through all this stuff about being an agent and everything, and how good Johnny Wright was, and the whole bit, but the problem was with it, here I was coming in on their turf now. Yeah, uh, that's uh, I was reading a, a book on um, Bob Eubanks wrote, and he got a letter one night in the mail at his hotel, and get out of this town, we don't welcome people like you in this town. I'm thinking, God, if I never got a letter like that, I never would have went back. But so I got the first day in. So now come the second day. Now what am I going to do? So back do I go down here again and same routine, yeah. go in, have a little chit chat in the morning. So I go back in this office now and I say, now what do I do? So I'm sitting there and another guy calls me and says, let's go out for supper tomorrow night. So I thought, okay. So I go out with him, another agent. So I go out and do all that. And Wednesday. Now, this is day number four now by the time, by Thursday, the time they got here. Now, Johnny and Kitty are now on the road for a week. Yeah. So here I am. I'm sitting down in this museum for a week. And I got nothing to do. I know nobody down there. The agents are friendly enough, but they're friendly with me for a reason. They're not friendly because I'm coming in to be an agent. They're friendly with me, expecting I'm going to book some of their acts. Oh, yeah. So they're cautious, wine and dine them and all this sort of stuff. But as near as I could figure, their social aspect of everything was so big. It was dinners, uh, lunches, cocktails, drinking, socializing. And as much as I was that day, age, I kind of like part of that. I didn't see where that was doing anything for me. Yeah. I couldn't figure where that would ever mean anything for my career or anything. And I couldn't imagine calling up a fair in, in Matheson, Ontario, and saying it's Brian Edwards from Nashville. They'd probably be more comfortable dealing with a guy named Brian Edwards from Peterborough yeah. at that particular time. So I thought about the Nashville thing, and when Johnny and Kitty come back, I had gone home by this point. I had taken my my two months' worth of clothes, and back I went. And he was pretty disappointed that I had left. And I said, well, no, I'm coming back down because I'm going to finish what I agreed to start. But I said, it might not be finishing it the way you want me to finish it because as near as I can figure, from what I see in town here in the, in those days, was it was ran by about four agents at the time. The top billing was one of the big agencies down there, United Artists and, and you know maybe two or three other ones, Billy Deaton yeah. Agency, and that was about it. They ran everything. And I, I kind of referred to them in latter days as glorified order takers. And I, that's not being nasty. It's being true. Yeah. They would never, ever have to leave town. They never seen what they wouldn't. Matheson, Ontario. Why would you ever want to go to Matheson, Ontario? What's, what's in Matheson, Ontario?
2: Yeah.
1: I'm the opposite. I'd rather go see where you are and what you're doing. And then I'll know what to get you the next time. If I go there and this doesn't work, nothing's going to work. But these guys didn't know anything about this sort of thing. They never went anywhere. They would go and sit, and that's all they did all day long. Well, that wasn't for me at all. I couldn't no. relate to that whatsoever. I mean, it sounded good. Where are you living? Well, I'm living in Nashville. Oh, my God, man, that's great. And I'd say, no, it's not. It's not great because I'm, I'm, I'm blocked in this corner now. Not stuck. With hindsight, if I would have stuck it out, it might have been, but I don't think it wasn't for me. And it still isn't for me, and it probably never will be for me because yeah. we've built this. One of the things I've learned with maybe working in the fair industry or working with grassroots artists is that there's part of Canada in the U.S. that people don't necessarily pay attention to, and it's called rural Canada or rule the US yeah. and it's nothing wrong with that I mean it's the heart and soul Wilf Carter had an old line saying I worked the big cities on the way to the small towns and he taught me small towns is where it's at yeah and it's still where it's at today because when you go into these smaller communities you're now bringing an event in you're not in the middle of 700 other events that are coming there that year and getting lost in the shuffle it's usually the only event they've got. Yeah, Like we'd go to work some of these arenas in Coldwater, Ontario. I mean, heck, that place, or Bob Cajun, or Pembroke, or, yeah. you know, uh, it, it didn't matter. Uh, where it was it? Uh, Englehart, Ontario, uh, or, or anywhere. It, it, we're going into these places. And then I thought, you know what? That's where I'm going to go. I'm going to specialize in taking entertainment the places that don't get entertainment because you can't go wrong. Even if you didn't like the music, you liked the event. You wanted to be seen at something around town. It's everybody was a social, it's like going to church. It's a social gathering. Only thing was missing was the strawberry supper. And we could get one of those if we wanted to. So I ventured into that side of things for a long time. And quite frankly, to a certain degree, I still do. Um, And it it had its really unique size of things that it was a step up from a fair, but not a lot more because it had a lot of complications to it. The crowds were fine. The shows went over well. Yeah. But they not, weren't necessarily equipped for bringing in a show. Yeah. You'd have to have a stage built. You'd have to have step up, up transformers to get the power converted that they needed it was some voltage of that, it could be converted to amps, and the special machine had to come in, or the place it had to be rewired to the tune of about four or 5,000 bucks. Yeah. So all of that had its little problems. But the rewards at the end of it were tremendous, because you'd go in and it was phenomenal. I mean, we've put Charlie Pride in some of those arenas, and God, you had 2,700 people in these places. They're only supposed to hold 1,200, but you'd pack them in anyway. Yeah. you know you'd go in, and it was a big deal. And you know what? The audience, I felt, and I wasn't performing at all, I felt, just from the vibe in there, that even if that was the worst show that artist ever gave, it was the best show that town had ever seen. Yeah. So the artists could let their hair down and get more out of them than they did. They weren't under any pressure. don't have to worry about some reporter from the Toronto Star coming or somebody like that. They could go in and have fun. And they did. Yeah. And you know, it was it was it was great because you could go work these places, and subsequently, as you mentioned earlier, it led to some other type of possibilities, like soft seat theaters. We certainly didn't start out by going to the Roy Thompson Hall or the O'Keeffe Center downtown Toronto, but we got there. Yeah. But we didn't start there. We would go in and do the Lindsay Academy Theater, or we'd go in and do um, the Belleville High School, and just things around. But it was. It worked. Yeah. You would go in and do these places and it, it, it was phenomenal, you know?
0: Well, talk about um, the complications of doing shows in the small towns. Um, not only do you had all the staging and everything you had to do to put the show on, there was no ticket master. So you'd, you probably had to arrange ticket locations at every single location. Uh, I mean, that alone is like a huge job.
1: Well, about that time when all that stuff was going, it was at one point I was literally a one-person puppet show yeah. for a while because I a, I couldn't afford to bring anybody in, and B, there was nothing to do. I mean, whatever we had to do, had to do it. Yeah. I mean, Sean and I still worked together a lot, but he had his radio show to continue with, and this agency and promotion, whatever you want to call it, was was booming. I mean, it was busy. So I approached my sister. Ella and said, look, why don't you come over here and we'll, we'll start working in this. She said, I'd love all that stuff. Yeah. It'd be great. And you know, we work together and all this sort of stuff. And we would do shows up in a little town called Englehart, Ontario, which is way up past New Liskert and all this other stuff. I mean, it's up there. But I met the fire chief. I called him one day in town. He happened to be a volunteer firefighter. And I said, how would you like to raise a bit of money for the fire department and of course he wasn't nobody ever thought ever coming to Englehart I mean what the heck that was great I said now the problem is Jim I need somebody to sell tickets he said well what does that mean so I thought well there's no sense of doing that if you're coming back with a question of what does that mean because you're in big trouble there was no credit cards in those days and it was all cash so we literally have to jump in the car and drive from Peterborough up there to put tickets in the outlets because the week before the show they'd be running out of them so you'd go up there and bring the cash all back go back up there again supply tickets and the places would say listen I don't want more than 100 tickets in this place because that means I've got you know $1500 a year money if we ever got broken in I don't want to take the responsibility yeah so I said, okay, well, she just get home and back up she'd go again. So she'd get in my car and up she'd go, pick up the ticket money up there. Or <laughs> a part time person was working in there and would hide the tickets under somewhere. She'd get up there and there'd be like $200. And she said, well, there should be 1500 Well, I couldn't get a hold of you. But before you got here, we found the other 80 tickets. So she'd have to leave the hundred can come all the way back and say, I'm coming all the way back. I've got $300 of the ticket money. So as much as it, but it did create some interesting little problems that we had to overcome. Yeah. And, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> it was entertaining because everything was cash, everything. Yeah. You know, we were selling all the merchandise in those days too. And we'd sell, you know, $15,000 of the tickets at the door. Yeah. I mean, you'd, and you'd have all this money. I had this big old brown travel bag I had, and uh, I had it wrapped full of money. It was money. And I'd wrap it around my leg at night and sleep with it in bed because I am afraid someone going to rob me. Well, I'm thinking, what am I going to do anyway? And they yeah. come in with a gun, chances are that bag's going. <laughs> you know, I would give it to them. But it was, it was rather, and then the credit card come on stream shortly after that, and we could take phone orders, which helped a little bit. Yeah. But it was still a problem going into these little communities of anything maybe dried up a lot of them, that's what it was. I mean, that one tour we did with Rita McNeil and all those little towns, I mean, it was pretty busy. Yeah. Because we sold every one of them out. And so between all of them you're probably talking seven thousand. I mean that's eighty thousand dollars of money you're carrying around a brown paper bag on the road.
0: Yeah, and there's not like a TD branch out of every small little town you can no, stop into.
1: No, you couldn't. As a matter of fact, I think I was with with the credit union at that time. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, you know, if you try to drop off cash today in a bank, it's even worse. They, they'll lock you up. They don't want any cash in the banks today. No. And I keep saying to the guy, well, just a minute now. What do they do when Tim Hortons come in? Do you tell them to go home? And he says, it costs us money to handle cash. We don't want cash in here. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what kind of sense does that make? No. But there's no cash out there anymore to worry about anyway. Everybody's no. debit and credit and. Bitcoin or whatever the heck it is they've got—they've got everything but, but money. Yeah. So that's kind of you know strange thing.
0: So how did the um, I wanted to get into uh, Stomp at Tom working and touring with with Tom a little bit. How how did that whole thing come about? Because um, I know Tom stopped touring for a long time and uh, um, came back in the early '90s, and you were the person who uh, took that on.
1: Well, one of the biggest things... I'd seen Tom perform when I was eight years old. He came to the exhibition in Peterborough. What I didn't know at the time that I knew in latter years, it was actually Tom that told me this, it was actually Sean Ayer that I was working with that brought him into the, into the fair because he was buying entertainment for the fair in those days, which I didn't know anything about. They probably give him 500 bucks and said, you bring the entertainment in. Tom was one of them. Yeah. So anyway, I'd met Tom when well, at that particular fair. And it had this strange um, impression at the time on me that I had thought as an eight-year-old that I literally had met God. I thought this was something, I'd never met anybody like this before in my life. Yeah. Well, it wasn't long after that that he ended up at one of our house parties that my mom and dad had at home because the guy that my dad worked with driving truck, give him the name stomp and tom he was a waiter at the local bar in peterborough and one night he introduced them instead of a tom connor's a stomp and tom and that stuck with him and of course that was kind of the peterborough connection well i had written letters and i'd done everything i could because he had left the business and i thought i thought i was doomed i was 14 years old i thought my life was gone you know i thought that was the end to me it was yeah. horrible so When Sean was on the radio, of course, that's who I'd call him and request all the time. drove him right up the wall. So anyway, he uh, he, Tom had formed a record company called Boot Records. And uh, he had, at one time, he owned 80%, controlled 80% of the publishing in Canada of any music that was Canadian. Plus this record company was the only one in the Canadian distribution. Wow. They had like Leona Boyd and Rita McNeil and you name it, Tom's yeah. catalog, of course. And because Tom was smart enough to keep the catalog, so he owned the whole thing. So I ended up touching base with a guy named Yuri Krychuk, who was Tom's manager, who had about a personality of a toenail that yeah. was wet. That wasn't good. Very arrogant, very rude, very curt. But he had a brother in there that I think he brought in because he knew he could at least have the personality. Yeah. So we had opened up... Um, a record shop at Peterborough called Sunshine's Record Bar or something like that. And they had a lot of the records that we wanted. So we ended up becoming um, a wholesaler of records through them. So again, that was what I thought was my connection to Tom. I'd send these letters on my old underwriter, typewriter, type them one thing at a time and send them in these letters and never, ever, ever were a response. Back to this mistake thing again. We've got to keep bringing that up because as this story goes on, the word mistake will come out a lot because that's exactly what it is. As mm-hmm. There's been more mistakes made that turned into great things. That It's it's just been it's phenomenal. So I, w- I was doing tours with Wilf Carter and Hank Snow and a couple of other acts at the time. And the phone call came one day from EMI Records, and I knew them quite well because... Frank Mills was with them. So I knew, they knew me, I knew them, and they knew how to get a hold of me for Wilf. So this guy calls up and he says, hey, it's Jody from EMI. I said, hey, Jody, how are you? He says, "Uh, great, man. He says, listen, we're having this party for Stomp and Tom downtown at the Matador Club um, in May the 15th. I said, oh my God, I could cry. I would miss that for the world. And he says, of course, what's he going to say? No, you're not invited because he wants me to get to Wilf Carter at this point because he oh, wanted yeah. Wilf there. So he's, oh, Brian, great. You know, I yeah, that's if I said, you know, new Tom, da 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 Because Tom had just signed the deal with EMI Records. He'd Done the KD Lang TV special, signed the deal with EMI. Yeah. And in the middle of all of this, I was kind of sensing something was going to happen because Tom said he was never going back on the road again. That was it. So, famous last word. Since I hear that word, I would love those words. The music to my ears. Anyway, <laughs> I said, too. Um, so this Jody says, yeah. And he said, oh, by the way, can you get an invite to Wilf Carter from me? He said, oh, sure. I'll get it. I mean, Wilf at this time was probably 88 or 89, living in Arizona. And although I knew him and spent a lot of time communicating with him, there's no way he'd jump on a plane to go anywhere, let alone the Matador Club in downtown Toronto on a Friday night at 9.30. So... We go to this thing and Barbara and I weren't even married at that time. And I was absolutely a nervous wreck. I was so, I was shaking to go into this club. And um, Jody had promised me that he'd introduce them to me. So I thought, well, um, I'm going to put a letter together. One more crack at it. I'm going to say, look, it's my lifelong dream, da 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 da, you know. Yeah. Unprofessionally written with this underwriter, temperator, but, you know, he could read it, no yeah. problem. And I put a Wolf Carter cassette in there with it, just to kind of cement the Wolf Carter thing. So, about maybe an hour at this party, they were having what they called a comeback party. Tom was going to do a dozen songs of this thing. Yeah. And he'd been deathly sick with the flu for about three weeks, and I didn't know that, but he had, so he didn't get in there till. You know, it was about maybe a half an hour before he was going to perform. And he was just as nervous as anybody. He's had been on the stage. Forever, yeah. 14 years. So I'd, I'd seen Jody at the thing, and I thanked him very, very much. And he, I said, you know, I've got this package for Tom. He said, well, I, I can give it to him. I said, well, you know, you did mention on the phone that, you know, maybe we could get to say Oh. So Tom had had a few people around him in those days that were kind of people that were neighbors and stuff that he kind of, I think he felt comfortable having them around them because it's the first time he kind of been out in the public in a while. Yeah. So it was almost like a, not a security team, but enough kind of keeping just, you know, things kind of away. So Jody finally comes over again and say, okay, well, come on, we want to say hello to Tom. And I going to get a picture taken yet, yeah, which I still hang on my wall. And he says, um, so Tom come over and I just, I, I lost it. I cried like a baby. Yeah. And he said, uh, Okay, I remember you're a good buddy and all this sort of stuff. And I said, I can't tell you what this means to me. And so anyway, he took the letter and the whole bit. Well, one thing leads to another and absolutely no communication whatsoever. Because he had a good buddy in Peterborough by the name of Kent Brockwell, who was a blind, strangely enough, this isn't funny, but it's true. He was a blind country singer that took trail rides out (laughs) on his farm Mm -hmm. so I used to go trail riding there with this blind guy leave the pack on these horses I don't give you a lot of confidence but anyway (laughs) so I stayed in touch with him a fair bit because I knew the connection with Tom there yeah so I thought nothing was happening but I knew something was going to happen I just kept sensing something was going to happen with this guy so one thing leads to another and I write Dean Cameron a note from EMI Records so Dean calls me up and says Brian I've had 18 letters from across Canada already plus CPI who was the big concert promoter in the day wants them to go out and he said I don't know but I'll tell you what I'll do for you I'll pass this letter along to Tom so okay well, about two months later, in the middle of the night, when I had the office in the basement of my house, I hear the fax machine going at about 2.30 in the morning because it rang. Yeah. Well, who the heck could be sending me a fax at 2.30 in the morning? Well, I go downstairs, and there's this handwritten note, and it says, Dear Brian, thanks for the letter that Dean Cameron delivered, sent me. Please keep in mind, I have a lot of things to consider with this, and I'm not even sure I'm going to go back out and do any tour dates. But the next time I'm in Peterborough visiting Kent Brockwell, I'll get a hold of him and we'll have a beer together. Tom. Well, I knew that's exactly who it was. Yeah. So I was just, I mean, I was, I mean, God, I was crazy that day. I thought something had really, really happened to me. It's a like twilight zone. So I could bar you went know, upstairs, get her out of bed, and. Look at this, look at this, look at this. She, I'm showing sure, her this thing. She well, who's that? And I says, <laughs> Who the heck do you like it? Is it Tom? That Tom. I said, that Tom. She Oh boy. So anyway. So that was kind of kind of a neat thing because about a month after that, a guy named Henry McGork called me. Yeah. And Henry was a reporter with Country Music News out of Ottawa who had done a, a big editorial on Tom it was so big it was over two months you know I mean when Tom told you a story it wasn't it wasn't one sentence it was a story yeah. you got the whole deal which was great because you got the whole thing yeah so Henry calls he says listen what are you doing next Thursday night at about ten thirty? not five o'clock or six o'clock about 10 I said probably going to bed well if you can meet me and he told me this place to meet him outside of Toronto I'll pick you up and he says if you're interested I'd like to go up Tom I'd like to talk to you well I knew what Tom and I knew Henry would work in whole bit, and I said well not even a question I'll be there yeah. so up I go to this place and literally at 10.30 and out we go so we get to the house about 11 o'clock and Lena Tom's wife I'd met many times over the years selling because she used to sell the merchandise for Tom and of course I'd met her at the party at the Matador yeah. she's just a Hospitable as ever, hugs and kisses, and good to see, you and all that sort of stuff, and so it was great. We had a great, you know, and she says, "Oh, Tom is downstairs, and he's got, I think, a guy named Art Haas was down there, and Henry Murguerk, myself, and a guy that used to be with EMI Records or Capitol Records called um, scooter Irwin, who was kind of involved a little bit. So, mm-hmm. I went down, and it was probably at the time. It was just it was bringing it all back, and what was really interesting was the place you had met was the furnace room, so Tom had an old forced air furnace there, yeah, oil, and a card table and four chairs around the card table, and that's where you sat and did everything, yeah, and you could hear the furnace kicking on and the whole bit, so we're telling stories about everybody under the sun for four and a half hours. Now we're getting close to, we're just about getting into around three o'clock. So I get this splitting headache. So I said, you don't have any Tylenol, do you? And he says, why? And I said, I got this headache. He said, oh, goddamn headache, Edwards. And he, <laughs> So he says, "He says we wouldn't have a stuff like that in this house. We don't take. So he says, have another drink. He says, It'll do you good. And I said, well, I have another drink. I'll be on the floor. Well, he's just coming. to. He's in his prime now because he was nocturnal. Yeah. So, I mean, starting a meeting at 1030 at night for him was great. Everybody else at the party might be a little bit ruffled up. So about 3 o'clock in the morning... He says, well, now I think we should maybe talk a little bit of business although we got you here and all this sort of stuff. And he said, you know, um, and he started going through this whole deal about he wants to do Canada and he had all these, he'd researched every venue across Canada with no internet in these days and mm-hmm. with no anything yeah. and how big the place has sat. That's what threw me. And he just knew all of this stuff. Yeah. And I'm sitting there looking at this list of stuff and he said, um, so I'm trying, I've met with a couple of promoters now, and he says, um, I want to go out and do 70 shows from Vancouver Island right through to uh, the Magdalen Islands. What the hell are the Magdalen Islands? I haven't hmm. even heard of them before. So, as it turns out, it's, it's just off the coast of Prince Edward Island, but it, that was a great education for me because I never knew where the heck they were before. And Tom's wife is from the Magdalene Islands. Yeah. He sang a lot of songs about them, Entry Island, and My home Out out Cradled out in the Waves and all that stuff. And so I knew that, you know, all, I kind of knew about it anyway. Yeah. So, he, um, so he said, we're going to go out and do 70 shows. Well, I said... Uh, well, that's not bad. I said, we should be able to do that in about 10 weeks. And he says, 10 weeks. He said, "Um, now this is where we might have a bit of a problem. And he says, I want to spread this over six months. And I said, "Uh, what do you want to do, like a weekend come home? He says, no, I want to go out and do 70 shows in six months from one end of Canada to the other. And I said, wait, uh, why? And he says, well, here's my philosophy. He said, I drive every blade, I drive every road in this country. I know every blade of grass from one end of the country to the other. And he does, mm-hmm. I mean, hitchhiked it back enough times years ago. And I want to work two and a half shows every two weeks. No, I want to work two, two and a half shows a week. week yeah. So I want to work five shows every two weeks and I said five shows every two weeks now that's not possible he said well I'm not a truck driver and he said my system is set up in such a way I tried to when I left the road go back to this going to bed at 10 o'clock get up at six or eight in the morning it didn't work he said um I'm going to um work those days I want at least one day off a week. So, well, that's reasonable, but how in the hell are we doing two and a half shows a week with only one day off a week? I couldn't get that through my head. And of course, it's three o'clock in the morning. So then he starts going into um, the money side of things. Yeah. So what his expectations and mathematically, now this is a guy that'll tell you that in no formal, you know, post-secondary school education he wasn't a, a a mathematician he wasn't anything like that he was a, a guy that got up and performed and sang songs about canada and stomped his foot well, that was the first mistake because that's the last thing he is that's part about 10 percent of his life 90 percent of it is you know, a good businessman and a damn good one yeah so we worked everything you know he talked about what he his expectation was money-wise and the whole bit and So I said, well, I'm beginning to sound like a broken record, but I'm going to tell you that um, I don't have any money. I said, I've got some money, but I certainly don't have enough money to set up 70 dates across Canada because you'd need auditorium rental, you need deposits on hotels in those days, advertising, I mean, that would cost $75,000, easy. That's yeah. just that's then that's
2: 1990.
1: Yeah, and you know we were talking playing Massey Hall downtown Toronto. I mean my God, I mean the rent in those days is like ten thousand dollars, and God knows what else. And of course they want I'm still this little guy from Peter. You know, they want that money now, not when we get there. Yeah, they want it today. So, as we get a little bit towards four four thirty in the morning, he says, "You know Edwards, I like you." Because he said if you can get along with Hank Snow, you can get along with anybody and Wilf Carter was my favorite singer, but he said, I don't think you understand me too much. He said, we either have a deal tonight before you leave or we'll, we won't have a deal. <clears throat> well, I'm determined I'm not leaving that house without a deal, yeah. but I also know I don't have any money. So I said to him, look, I'll give it my heart and soul more than anybody will give it. And I said, I'm not from the big city, I'm not sure I understand the way you tour but I know the music well enough and I know who I think the audience is. And he says, well, that's why you're still here because I, I I like that part. He says, I can't necessarily get that from the other people I've talked to. But he said, you know how to go into these little communities and everything else. And he said, "That's that's a big thing for me. So yeah. my audience is. So as it turned out, we ended up Shaking hands at about 5.30 in the morning. And we did a percentage deal on everything, including the merchandise, and when we were going to start, and how many days we were going to do. And the next week, a check for $50,000 from me landed into my door to help promote the tour. Wow. What do you think of that. So not only didn't I have any money going in there, I'd never been in any of those places before. Yeah. He had enough faith in me to send me the money on a loan basis with no interest or no anything and here we were four months later as you know you were on that tour with that us was, yeah. going starting in Owen Sound Ontario at the high school where they wouldn't let them smoke or drink in the dressing room which drove them crazy <laughs> um and we were on our way was it that quick that it came together oh yeah wow. this was in January I was up there seeing them. so that's that how quick, quick it was Oof. Look, Jeez. one thing about Tom, that's how we yeah. did business for 23 years. Tom didn't call me three years ahead of the tour. Tom called me and said, Would you like to come out for a visit? Yeah. And I'll tell you, he wrote a contract up and I took it to my lawyer and he said, um, Who the hell's his lawyer? And I said, God, I don't know. He says, My God, I've never seen anything like this in my life. He says, That's unbelievable. So I said to Tom, I called him, had to call after four. He didn't call before four o'clock in the afternoon because it just was, you just didn't do that. I said, uh, my lawyer wants to speak to your lawyer. He says, uh, I'll have a lawyer. And I said, well, he wants to know who wrote this contract up. He says, I wrote the contract up. So I said, okay. So I called the lawyer back and he says, there's no way that this guy could write this up. Well, in latter years, I found out that he basically rewrote the EMI contract, too. And it was more legal than the one they had. Really? Because he researched all that stuff. Yeah. Tom would do a contract with you or me or whoever he was doing it with that cut out 99% of the stuff that didn't matter and literally didn't matter. But the stuff he put in there was so real that it was we used the same contract forever. Yeah. I just changed the dates. I kept it on my computer. Because he did everything. When you had a handwritten or hand typewriter from him, he had an old underwriter typer and he did it himself. Yeah. On his own, the same, no word processor, no nothing. It was, and so I took that, had it retyped in the computer, and just saved it, and we would just change the dates on it. So.
0: And that's hard to imagine, you know. Back then, as, as you said, there was there's was no internet. There's nothing. That's a lot of research.
1: So, I had to rely on a lot of people. At that time. One was yourself coming out there. You come on that tour with me. Yeah. You I knew you better than I knew anybody in that mix and at least I knew you're in that department, you're gonna be looking out for me too, because I had to have somebody because I had to go I used Wall Sound out of Ottawa or something.
2: Yeah, well. I
1: never forget we were doing a rehearsal up at the Pines in Bridge North, Ontario and Tom come over to me, and they were setting up. He says, um, now there's some funny little black boxes on that on the stage up there. What the heck is that? I said, they're a monitor. He says, a monitor? And what the heck is that? I said, well, it's basically you'll be able to hear yourself. He said, are you nuts? I don't want to hear myself through that thing. <laughs> and I said, well, give it a try and see if you like it. Yeah. So he says, God, Edwards, I don't know about you. And of course, I, I always thought he, I mean... He had a way to keep you on the edge, yeah. but deep down inside, he respected what you were doing. And he would, we would did that, did that sound check deal, and um, he, came, he came over to me and he says, um, Are you sure these guys are going to be okay? He says, I, I don't need something that fancy. Because remember, he'd worked these arenas and he had two trainer columns, one on either side of the stage, and a guitar player. And a bass part. That was it.
2: Yeah.
1: And now we're bringing him into a drummer. Everything was electronic. Keyboard, steel. Keyboard and steel and the whole bit. Yeah. Now, he had the steel at the, at the, at the horseshoe. Yeah. Mickey Andrews worked there many years ago with him. So here we go. We go out there and we're going to do this tour. And I would say for the most part, it was very successful but there's a lot of them that were not successful. Yeah, And I think in the day, and this is kind of funny as things kind of come around in life, people thought it was somebody impersonating him wasn't the real guy. Oh, yeah. So, and I thought, I wonder how they'd ever think that. I mean, nobody does that. So anyway. Not then. Not then. So I'd say, so I'd have to go on quite an educational thing to, um, to get him to uh, uh, understand that, you know, that's just just the way it was. You know, yeah. we had to go with with modern technology and the whole bit. But we'd have, I'd, I I made a deal with them, which he did. He wanted when the part of the deal was either when I wasn't there, which he hated that I wasn't out there, yeah. that whoever was there had to be me. So if there's a question that had to be answered at four o'clock in the morning or four thirty, that answer had to be the answer and had to stand. So I go home I call my sister Ellen I said look I know you've got a few young kids at home but what do you think of this and she said well you know I do anything for you I'll go out and do the tour and um, I said well I don't know this guy very well I like him but he spooks me a little bit because he's tough as nails Mm -hmm. and I said you know I don't know if you'll be able to handle them over right there or not. So I did the first two shows, and then I had to leave. I was on the tour road with Wilf Carter, <laughs> which he said, if it wasn't Wilf Carter, I wouldn't let you go, you know, you bugger. <laughs> so I said, well, you're in good hands in the whole bit. And it was interesting because Tom had never had a lady on the road with him in the band or anything. Well, now, we, other than Lena was out there towards the end of when he was performing yeah. in, the, in, in the 70s. But now he's got two of them. He's got my sister, Ella, and now he's got mary McCrae or M- mary mcintyre playing the piano yeah so he's now he's not a little bit concerned because now all of a sudden he's doesn't have me who signed the deal he's got ella out there and i'll tell you they had some interesting conversations through the night but at the end of the day they both respected each other a lot and yeah. that tour uh, when that thing ended at Massey Hall and we did two shows down there he had that place absolutely jam packed in both both nights i mean it was he told me "This other thing he taught me he said whatever you're going to do when you do toronto do not announce toronto before you announce all these little towns because the people from tr- the little towns won't like me yeah they'll think i have to go to toronto and that's the only place they can see me and he says toronto is there because it will be big at the end but I don't want people in the little towns to forget I, I think the same of them too. Yeah. So he taught me a lot. I probably learned more from Tom from a business perspective than anybody because he was all business.
0: Yeah, and I think uh, people have a tough time believing that's what he was like. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, but he it, certainly was. Oh,
1: boy. I would. Um, he, we'd get to the part where it was funny because even though... Well, he got, he entrusted me with his mother's ashes for a month at my house, for God's sake. So we got to the point where, you know, we had this mutual respect for each other. But the good thing about working with Tom was this never once could I leave a meeting and say we agreed on everything both together. But we'd shake hands and say, I'll agree to disagree, but I respect you and I respected him. And yeah. he would, <laughs> the first tour I sent him, the tour route, And I wasn't home conveniently, so he called Ella and let her have it about, what the hell does he think I am, a truck driver for God's sakes? Look at this. I said I wanted one day off a week. When I'm driving 300 miles, that's not a day off. I want to get out of my bed in the morning, look out that window and see the truck and say, great, I don't have to go anywhere today, I don't have to do a show. That's a day off. I'm only asking... For one day off a week, what can he not get through his head? Yeah. <laughs> I'd say, but you've got all these other days off. He said, driving 250 miles isn't a day off. He says, that's harder than doing a show. Yeah. So we, would, I would, <laughs> we did Victoria and Vancouver back-to-back one day. And we had to get on a ferry and go to Vancouver and go in and do the show at the same time. And he was so mad at me. And he'd say, Edwards... If it was anybody else, I'd have fired them long ago. But he says, for some reason, I like you. And he said, (laughs) you almost killed me. He says, stopping Tom getting up in the morning at 11 o'clock and getting on a ferry and going to Vancouver. What in the hell is wrong with you? (laughs) I'd say, well, I mean, I'd say, look, it's the only time we could get Vancouver. He said, I know you better than that, Edward. It's a Saturday night. That's why you want it. <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> he said, forget about all that stuff. He said, if they want to come and see me, it won't matter what night of the week. And he was right. Yeah. Everything he said, he was right. I mean, you know, he would he would have a meeting with some of those musicians on the road. And in five minutes, you I could tell you just by his expression whether you were going to last or not. Because yeah. a lot of them didn't last. No. And it was a A situation, as Tom said, and you you talked about this earlier, you talked about musicians, whether were uh, you always looking for the best studio musicians in the world to travel the road that could get every note perfect? Or were you looking for people out there that A, especially on that tour, that was a tough tour. You either, you had to have lots of patience. Yeah. You had to get along with everybody. And you basically had to live in isolation because you weren't going anywhere. No. And Tom didn't want to stay in anything but drive up door rural motels. And the least people who knew where they were, the better. So some of them were some dandies. But he didn't want anybody interfering with them. And he didn't want them interfering with anybody else. Yeah. I mean, you went out for dinner and you damn well better be back when you're supposed to be back. And you wouldn't like it. Yeah. He always felt that almost responsible for you out on the road. It didn't come across that way at, at times. But, you know, I've read a lot of stories since about people saying, you know, his contracts made the band drink and made them do this and made them do that. Well, there were several musicians out on that trip never touched a drop of alcohol at all. and yeah. He had as much respect for them as he did anywhere else. He had probably more respect for them than the fact that they stood up and said, I don't drink and didn't drink instead of drinking to appease him. Yeah. He thought that was, when you stood up and said to him, I don't agree to that because he would give you, give you that benefit of the doubt and say, that's not how I see it, but I understand yeah. why you do this and say, but you know, we had a deal that always worked, and it was a, a funny little clause that went in. We would go work on these band contracts or any contracts, you know, and they were nothing more than just making sure everybody understood everything. But there was a line in there that was really funny. It says, any, discreps, any discrepancies in here, the word of Stomp and Tom was final. Well, I don't know why we even did the contracts up because it really, that superseded anything anyway. Yeah. But very rarely would we have to use that because he treated everybody out there, A, if you like to drink beer or smoke cigarettes, you're never going to do without either one of those two, ever. Yeah. Because there was, an, I mean, one of the trucks was full of moosehead beer constantly, all the time, no matter what. We were even getting close to being out where we were full. We never, ever, ever were ever going to run out. And at least once, if not twice a week, he'd take you out for a dinner and spend a thousand bucks on the dinner. And You might not go to the place till four or five o'clock in the morning at the restaurant, but you'd have been well-fed and watered yeah. and drink whatever you want and eat whatever you want and not pay a nickel. Yeah. And here he would be out there with a wad of cash in his pocket that would scare you because you never use a credit card or a check or anything. He was the type of guy that, from the old school that believed cash was king. Yeah. And he had an old doctor's bag and it had a false bottom in it. And underneath that was money. And he just kept, that's how he, that's how he was. Yeah. So, you know, we just, we got along famously well. And I mean, God, I, we we must have done probably 250 shows, if not more together. So that's, and towards the end when he stopped touring, before he stopped touring, I was a little bit more selective of where we went yeah, and how many days. He certainly got his, Two and a half shows a weekend then. I was very cautious that we didn't (laughs) overdo it. He finally said to me, Edward, you finally got this right. It's taken you 23 years and you got the way we should tour across Canada. But no, he was good. I got to meet a lot of people with him. There was two in particular that I remember very correctly. One is um, Parliament Hill with the Queen up there. That was quite something. And uh, I'll never forget that part. And and, uh, um, the Order of Canada... Uh, him and Mr. Dress-Up got it the same night. Oh, wow. And there was a lady, I can't remember her name now, but she was on a wheelchair. So Tom thought he kind of break dice a little bit and ride around the room in this wheelchair on the back with this lady with those electronic wheelchairs. And it was him standing up there with a moose head and a cigarette in his hand going around Rideau Hall with this wheelchair. (laughs) It was great. But he introduced me. I got a chance to meet a lot of people that I never would have met in a 100 years without him. Yeah. And, uh, you know, whether it was the closing of the Maple Leaf Gardens or, or working in the Air Canada Centre or, you know, doing three or four shots on Parliament Hill, meeting Wayne Gretzky's uh, um, induction to the Hall of Fame and meeting all those hockey players that I knew all those years. And yeah. it was just great. You know, you, he, he had this way about him the people gravitated to him and it was great. And the shows were always, now there's somebody that speaking about the audience being everything. I mean, he'd be very, very respectful. And especially when the days when he was autographing as much as he could, I mean, God, we'd be there for four or five hours easy. Cause you didn't come in and shake Tom's hand and say goodbye. Tom will know all about you and where you lived and what the kids did and all this other stuff. And yeah. he just took time with you. And that's what, when he worked the bars, he'd sit down, have a drink as many people as he could in the bars. That's why he could drink so much beer. Because any night they'd send him up 10 or 12 beers and he could drink them. He never was a, I don't want to call him a binge drinker. He was just steady. Yeah. Never a problem with me anyway. Um, he and I, we won't, you know, we could go on. I could talk to him about it for three days. But one of the things that was rather interesting, we never, ever, ever had a disagreement that we could never figure out. And at the end of the day, um, he wrote me quite a letter about... Um, about eight months before he died, I think it was. He says, I've never told you this before, but I've got a lot of respect for you. and did a lot of things for my family and myself and I'll never, ever forget it. And I thank you. And that's the first accolade in writing that he'd ever sent. And he had a belief that while you were working together, two people had a job to do. And that's where I got that bit about if I wanted you to do a bad job, I wouldn't have hired you. I expect you to do a good job. Yeah. So he didn't think patting somebody in the back every five minutes was necessary because if he didn't like what you were doing you'd hear about it and you yeah. did you know exactly where you stood i went talking until three o'clock in the morning to get it out but you'd get it out yeah so you know
0: yeah that's, that's real true isn't it? it it's i think especially in the music industry people are just they're just always so waiting for oh you were great or how oh, I great know. that was or great you know and i think it goes to any business but if you hire somebody you're hiring because you know they're going to do the job and well, I you think, don't always have to be you know you want to you know hey great great show tonight guys I was fun but it seems like everybody wants so much uh, gratification after every single show they do
1: well unfortunately especially I found in the latter years if you say somebody you're the greatest person I've ever had work with me on the road they almost believe that. yeah. And I don't mean that the way it sounds, but they almost figure, well, I'll fix you. You don't have me, you have nothing. Well, I'm going to tell you a little secret. One of the things that Tom did te- teach me was rather unique. And he'd have a meeting with everybody the very first day, and it was very blunt. He'd say, now, you might consider this egotistical or whatever you want to consider, but I'm going to tell it to you exactly how I see it. There's only one person on this road that can't be replaced. And that was him. And he tell you that. Yeah. So he said, everybody here can be replaced. So never get in your head that I can't do something without you because I'll show you in a heartbeat that I certainly can. Yeah. And if you've got a problem with that, you shouldn't be here. So what I've learned from that, because I've made that mistake too by saying, especially I find on occasion, if you're bringing somebody really young into the situation, if they're told that behind the scenes you're excellent and you're wonderful and everything else that they absorb that real quick Mm -hmm. it's almost like then they start telling you how wonderful they are so the next time i get them out there for somebody else has been with them they start telling me how wonderful they are and i say look in your mind you probably are and in that situation i don't doubt it a bit but you give me 10 minutes with you and i'll tell you how wonderful you are you You know, you, everybody, just because you can do something with somebody, the the whole, the whole unique thing about this business is this, whether it's from the technical side or promoting side or manager agent side, the, the whole bit, if you don't have the connection, you've got nothing. Yeah. You can work it and fight it all along. You can have a manager you fight with, an agent you fight with, a promoter you fight with and everything else, or in my case, right, wrong, or indifferent. I've built everything on longevity because after so many years, like for example, you know, we're getting ready to do uh, a red green tour next year all over North America. And when I get a note that says, I don't care where we go. You just said it. And I don't care what dates we go. You just tell me when to go. You know, you've got a comfort level then. Yeah. And you strive for that. I heard a, I read something on the internet one day, another promoter agent was saying something the fact of i've proven to my acts that i've given them the best they're going to get and i know as long as i can keep getting them that they will be as loyal as ever to me and that's what's wrong with some of the people in the industry well that's great and i respect that and i think it's wonderful however there's also part b to that and part b is if your heart and soul is in something and you believe in somebody, and you work as hard as you can work to get them the best you can get them, if one little bad apple gets in there for some reason, there's no fault of anybody else's, I don't call that loyalty if you leave. yeah, The loyalty starts and finishes from day one. And to get loyalty, you have to be, it works both ways. You have to be very if it's too one-sided, it's never going to work because I've been in these situations, you've been in those situations, and you know it's constantly a battle. Yeah. If it isn't a battle verbally, it's a battle mentally, and one's just as bad as the other. Matter of fact, mentally is worse. So as you age in this thing, and if you manage to survive and go through all this nonsense and abuse and all that other stuff that could happen, you come out of it a better person if the team you've got and the people around you are loyal and good and supportive. And you feel that you can trust everybody. I've got a guy that's working with me in the office that I've known since I've been, God, 14 years old, probably at a radio station on Lindsay. And he has been drives back and forth to the office now for 22 years. His name is John Lester. And I know I can trust him with anything that I want in that office and never have to worry about it. And he knows that he's got, I've got his best interests at heart too. And that means everything. And whether you and I've worked together for God knows how many years, and we know that we're both out for our best interests. We don't have to worry about, what's that guy doing to me that I don't? And it works the same with an artist. If an artist gets comfortable with you, you're away. And I kind of chose the route that I'd like longevity to go. If I make a mistake, listen, I used to have staff meetings every morning. I'd walk in and say, okay, so I want everybody to talk this week about things that went wrong. Now, I'm gonna tell you, my list has got 30 things wrong that I've done this week so far, and I'm running this company. Mm -hmm. And I'm not afraid to say that. And I'm not ashamed of it because we make mistakes. And if you want somebody perfect, you got to go way beyond us because I'm not even sure anybody exists that's perfect. No. And I think if you're open with some of these people, whether it be an agent or a manager or, or a, an artist or the public or technical support people or office people or anybody, that approach is essential because you you need that loyalty to stick with you. Because I don't want any changes in life at the moment as far as the business goes. It's it's gone to the point now that although we have to bring in people for advice and different marketing strategies or whatever the case happens, to try to stay as current as we can, I don't think all of a sudden um, saying, let's take on 10 new acts next week because we really need to stay busy and that's what we need to do because nobody's comfortable in it. No. You're not, John's not, I'm not. And for God's sakes, the artist sure in the heck isn't because here's this guy from Peterborough that promotes Red, Green, Stoppington, Wolf Carter, Kitty Wells. I mean, what the heck does he know about what we do? Nothing. Mm-hmm. And I had a and an agent called me one day, and there was two award winners on the Canadian Country Music Awards, and he said, "I'm teaming them up. They're the winners. These people have won seven CCMa awards between them. Would you please do a seven-day tour with them?" And I said, "You know." I'm not sure. And that guy says, are you crazy? He says, they're, they've won CCMA awards. They're, they're big. They're on television. Yeah. And I said, yeah, i haven't guys on television for 36 years? What, what, what does that mean? And uh, so he says, um, so I said, well, here's what I'll do. I'll go through the motions and I'll put together a budget. Okay. And I said, well, because everybody talks budget today. you got to send the spreadsheets in and 12 people got to look at them and an accountant that doesn't know the first thing about the business anyway, but they've got to look at them. Look yeah. at them and see, you know, you're right or wrong and where this fits in and the whole bit. So I said, okay, let's go. We'll do this. So I get the budgets all done up. I send them in and I said, now as near as I can figure, when it's all said and done, the acts will make $4,000 between them. Now the agent said... That's wonderful. And I said, why is that wonderful? Well, he says, it's great. They're getting great exposure in the whole bit. And I said, let me just think about this for a minute. These two people are the top drawer acts in the country at the moment, according to a bunch of block voting with the CCMA. These yep. guys are going to rule the roost. So let's go out and we'll do this. So I said, now, I'm not going to do this tour." He said, you've got to be crazy. He said, do you know the relationship you could build with these two acts and how much that would do you great to have these two under your belt? And I said, well, I'm going to tell you something. If my only accomplishment in this business is to get these acts, each $2,000 each, and each of them have a bus, each of them have hotel rooms to pay for, they got an agent to pay for, and they got a manager to pay for, that won't make any sense to me. And he said, you just don't understand it. And I said, well, I probably don't. So, when somebody says, why aren't you taking on all these modern country acts or the greatest people in the world, you should have them out there. You should be be doing it, why not? I say, we're doing each other a big favor. I think it's wonderful what they're doing. I think they can go out there and fill these places up and do great business and have their semis and their managers and their agents and God knows what else they've got. If they can make big money, go do it. I'm all for it. I can't see where I fit into that because yeah. I don't, I'm not going to make any more money. I mean, go to the people that understand that type of thing. You know, I got I, a good mutual friend of ours, Tinty Moffat, called me one time and she said, I got Randy Travis available October the 8th, 9th, and 10th. It's so a Thanksgiving weekend. Yeah. I said, God, you know, we've just done a Roy Clark tour together. We've done a Mel Tillis get as bad as Mel Tillis, Mel (laughs) Tillis Tour, and it was great. And I said, I missed the chance to book Randy Travis many years ago when a a guy called me up and said, I want $5,000 a day and we're going to do, we want to do Toronto, Hamilton, and Kitchener. And I called the guy that ran CFGM and he said, we wouldn't touch that show with a 10-foot pole. Randy Travis won't draw anything. And he said, it'll be an embarrassment to the station and an embarrassment to the people, an embarrassment to Randy. He's a great guy, but there's no way we're, this is when, uh, you know, forever ever, and amen and all that stuff yeah. was big time. So the guy called me up. He said, look, if you don't do this, I've got a, an agent. I got a promoter in the US that does, and Lib Hatcher's given me 24 hours. said, you deal with that guy in Canada I've never heard of before? Because he knew me, and he said, but I'm going to give you, he, I said, gee, how much? And he said, 15, I said, $15,000. God, that's a lot of money. And he says, well, you know, one day, you're going to wish that you, you got involved in this thing. I said, well, the radio station in Toronto says he won't draw nothing. Lesson number, 5,000. Yeah. Never listen to them. So I had to pass back in there. They brought him two months later. Not only did he one show in Toronto, we did two. And Hamilton sold out Kitchener sold out a whole bit. Yeah. So now is my chance. Now, it's 20 years later, but now I've got a chance to book Randy Travis. So I'm ready. Thanksgiving weekend, let's do the Saddledome in Calgary. Yeah. Let's do the big arena in Saskatoon. And let's do the big arena in Edmonton. Let's go do it all up. Let's we'll set them up for 8,000 capacity. I'm ready to go. This is going to be, this is it. Yeah. I'm going to make it big time. So we get the dates on sale and everything. And the big term in the industry is, how did it come out of the box? Yeah. In the old days, you had a box of tickets. And that's literally how they sold them. Yeah. So. Tinty called me and got the numbers and I said well uh, we did 180 in Calgary and we did 175 in Edmonton and um, in Saskatoon we did like 250 uh, and this silence was on the end of the phone and she said is that all the ticket outlets I said unfortunately that was a term from 30 years ago yes that's the Ticketmaster number she said oh my god that's horrible what do you want to do and I said well god it's got it can't get worse yeah. it's got to get better so we chug along, chug along and chug along and chug along and chug along and chug along. So finally, we get one of the dates up to 1,000 and one's up to 900. Now, remember, we're working the saddle dome in Calgary, for God's sakes. And that place, I mean, 14,000 seats. Yeah. So they say, well, we'll curtain it off and it won't look so bad. We only have 7,000 seats. Well, so that's, that's 800 fit comfortably in there. That'll be great. <laughs> so. So I'm. So I hear this term in the industry called... A rebate, yeah. So I think we're paying him thirty grand a day or something—a lot of money. So I said, um, "I'm going to call Tinty. We're going to get a rebate." Well, as it turns out, Lib Hatcher's sick at this point, or not feeling well, and she can't come to Canada, so she wants to cancel the dates anyway. Yeah. Well, I go add up all the expenses for the advertising, the theater, the arena rentals, the staff, the sound and lights, and everything. That I've got to now do, I, I can't. I, I've got to. Com- I've committed to it. Yeah. It came to thirty-eight thousand bucks. If I canceled the dates, it was going to cost me forty thousand dollars, because I'd already had this money out. Yeah. So I said, Tinty, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. I just want to get a rebate. She said, Well, she didn't want it. They want it. They don't want to do a rebate. And I said, Of all the agents and promoters that come this country that have not paid their bill and not and always got rebates. They're not going to rebate anything? That's crazy. No. She says, well, but what they'll do is that next time they go to those markets, they're your dates. I said, God, I don't want to lose $40,000. That's crazy. Yeah. Well, as it turns out, two of the arenas, I talked to them, gave them the story. I said, you know, I don't really want to cancel this thing. I'm only a 1,000 people. And Saskatoon and Edmonton called me up and said, look, there's no cost for here at all. Zero. Nothing. Uh-huh. So that was $8,000. Yeah. So now we're down to thirty. So I thought, look, I've wanted to do this all my life. We were flying with all kinds of tour dates anyway. I've got a chance to get the dates back whenever he comes back up again. So that's, you know. Anyway, we did the dates, and he was wonderful, and they are great and the whole bit, but it looked a little sparse in some of these places Not that many people. Yeah. But he thanked me and said how much respect he had for me for doing the dates and all that stuff so a couple of years later of course it's time to do more dates yeah i'm reading on the internet that he's doing all these dates in western Canada, and i thought huh that's kind of strange you know the old saying what about me yeah so i call up tantin she says well i hate to talk to you this but he's not with our agency anymore He's with somebody else and they have sold the dates to another agent and i said well, what the heck does the agent have to do with it I mean, you know, that was then she says, well, sorry, you know, it's, you know. You she meant well, it was her fault, but no. it was just, so when somebody says to me, let's go out and take, I've had the Charlie McLean thing, Randy Travis, and then Brad Jones and I did a date with um, uh, a group that the guy was going out with, uh, with Sonny Bono's wife um, after sure. she died. No, no. Oh. When he died and got in that accident, his uh, ex-wife uh, he, yeah. and she was uh, anyway. I can't think of the name of this group, but they were, they were, they were you know, um, excellent group and they did very, very well. And so Brad called me and says, "Les Edwards, they got the number one song this week in country radio. Let's do the Peterborough Arena with them." So I okay. "Okay, oh, let's go do it." So here we are. We've got the. They're still going too. I can't of the heck their name is. But anyway, um, the drummer worked on a Kitty Wellster with us once. I remember who they were, but. Uh, anyway, they were something like Lone Star, but it wasn't them. It was something similar to them. So we go out on the road and we bring them into Peterborough and we get everything all set to go. And 300 people in that arena is all we had. So I said, from now on, I'm not touching it. If it's got too many buses or a semi, I'm not touching it. Yeah. So, and it's. I think it gets back to just, you know in your mind you want to do that, but you shouldn't. If, if you don't really know what you're doing, and obviously I didn't, We shouldn't have done it, and that's just, you know, it's it's learning not to do it. Sometimes it's better to pass on more things and take them.
0: Yeah, it's it's that, and that's that's the smart play. It's knowing what not to take and knowing what to take. Exactly. Yeah,
1: you know, it's a you know over the years, it's been it's been quite uh, you know. I mean, if if I believed everything I read about what I do, I probably would be in big trouble because. The old saying goes that, you know, if you feed something to somebody and they print it and you believe it, then you're in big trouble as they are. So we used to send all our box office reports into Polestar magazine and, you know, it would come out and they'd say, well, you know, they'd write you this note and say, you know, you're in the top 100 promoters around the world. And you think, my God, that's wonderful. And then the phone would ring from all these acts that wanted to book them. You didn't want to book in the first place. Yeah. And then so can it call you because you missed the date on this one or somebody else. And I got thinking, you know what? Sometimes it's better to say nothing. Just sit there, and little old Peterborough, I'm there for a reason. I love it there, but we didn't have to go downtown Chicago, downtown Toronto. Yeah, you can do everything you want to do. And sometimes, when an artist is coming up and they realize you're not paying three thousand dollars a square foot for a rent downtown Toronto or whatever it is that. They stand a chance to make money too, uh, better money. I read a, I read a book not long ago that Anne Murray had written and her manager just passed away who I had a lot of respect for, Leonard Rambo, one yeah. of the best, um, he, he he was great. I used to go listen to him do seminars and stuff and I got a lot, a lot from him. But one of the points she made in this book was um, that she could never figure out, and Frank Mills had told me this story too, that they'd have these lavish parties after these shows were done. Dom on Champagne, the media will all be there, all these people from the record company and all this sort of stuff. And she said, you know, I never knew who paid for all that stuff. And she said, I'm reading through all this stuff. And she said, I paid for it. And I thought to myself, of all the years I've seen these writers with all this stuff in it and all these parties that have taken place, if if any advice or anything could go to Anybody today. Just remember that's all money. It's gotta come from somewhere. Yeah. So if you're content that you should have pheasant under glass and the best wines and champagnes and alcohol on the road, um a lady from Shipshawana, Indiana, really nailed it good one night. She says, We're in an Amish community there doing a red-green date. And she says, Now, um, what are you doing here with writers, with alcohol? She says, why would I spend money on something that's going to make an artist be that much less coherent and not be able to do their job right? She says, that don't make sense to us here. And I said, you know, I don't particularly care what anybody does. I mean, I worked with Ray Ray price he'd be stoned to the hilt before he got on the stage but the show was good yeah and how he got there was really irrelevant to me but i didn't buy the platforms i couldn't care what he did yeah but the you know these particular things especially cost a lot of money and i guess when you're riding high you think nothing of it frank mills tells me that story when you're out there filling the places up and you're packing the man you're having these great parties afterwards and then you find out at the end of the tour you're writing them a check there's you know, something wrong with that. Yeah. And I say, well, I'm surprised. I see some of this stuff going on today too. But I say to myself, you know what? We understand what we do, and we do it to the best of our ability. They understand what they do, and they do it to the best of their ability. If we're winning and they're winning, I don't care what they do. Yeah. And they probably don't care what we do. Yeah. So I, I was kind of flattered that I was going to tell you this. Last week I, was, I opened up the Peterborough paper on Friday. And I seen an ad for a tribute show in there. And I looked at that ad and I thought, God, that looks familiar. And it was done exactly the same, the same size, same inches, same words, same everything that we do our ads with. And I got thinking, I don't know whether I should take that as a slight or a compliment. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to take it as a compliment. Because if somebody duplicates what you do, yeah, you know you're you doing, it doing it right. It right. Yeah. Exactly. So... That's That's
0: the whole deal. Well, uh, I think we could talk forever, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's been two and a half. Oh, boy. Um, I think we... Let's call this part one. Oh, boy. And I know we're touring a lot this fall. Why don't Mm -hmm. we take uh, another night uh, uh, during the fall run, and uh, there's a whole whack of stuff I love to to get to and and talk about touring nowadays compared to what it was like touring... uh, uh, years ago with Tom and and Kitty Wells and all those acts I know because it's it's quite different than there's a lot of similarities but it's, there's a lot of things that are quite different and and uh I think there'd be lots of lots of great things we could speak about then. Oh, too
1: you bet yeah we got yeah. lots of red green stuff to tell and all. oh that I know sort of we haven't even be...
0: touched Charlie Pride and red green oh, and I know. a bunch of yeah. people so yeah absolutely uh, it's been fascinating and I, I think this was uh, uh a great learn for a lot of people and I think they'll really enjoy listening to uh from the beginning up until now. And and I look forward to the next one as well. Thank you very much. Thanks, Brian. And uh, don't forget to uh, check out the uh, first two podcasts we have out. uh, And uh, we've got lots of listeners coming, and lots of great comments. And uh, check us out on iTunes in session with Darren Walters. Also the uh, www.darrenwalterspodcast.com, And don't forget to subscribe and leave comments and uh, uh, reach out to uh, myself on Instagram and Facebook, and you can find Brian as well. What's the best way to people to reach out to you if they want it through Facebook? Is a good idea?
1: Yeah, I'm on Facebook, or you yeah. can go. We got Rocklands on Facebook. I'm on Facebook, and then of course RocklandsEntertainment.com. See how old I am, and I'm still on social media. Believe it or not, I know it's great. <laughs>
0: I love it. Mm-hmm. All right, we'll uh, talk to everyone soon. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank you.